Good evening. Let's call to order the council meeting of August 29th, 2023. Before we get started, I'd like to remind participants of some procedural items for the meeting. During the meeting, remote participants will remain muted when not speaking. If remote participants have a question or comment, please use the raised hand feature. Speakers will be called upon to speak one at a time, and a random order voice vote will be administered by the city clerk for each vote. Members of the public may participate in person, online, or by telephone. To, get, to provide public comment, please submit a speaker card to the city clerk. Uh, if you're in person or use the raised hand feature online to request to speak, star nine on your telephone. Location and online meeting details are available on the council agenda. Captions are available to those viewers accessing this meeting via Zoom. Captions can be displayed or hidden using the, sh using the show captions button. Comments on matters not on the agenda must be submitted prior to the time I call the item for oral communications. Comments on agenda items must be submitted prior to the time I close the public hearing on that agenda item. Speakers are requested to keep their comments to no more than three minutes and time limits will be strictly enforced. Guidelines are posted on the city website and on the council meeting agenda. First, please join me in a salute to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Next is roll call. City Clerk, may we please have roll call? Mayor Klein. Present. Vice Mayor Dean. Present. Council Member Melton. Present. Council Member Cisneros. Present. Council Member Mallinger. Present. Council Member Srinivasan. Present. Council Member Sell. Present. Seven present. Thank you. Uh, Vice Mayor, may we please have the closed session report? Yes. Uh, council met in closed session on two items. Uh, one is conference with legal counsel anticipated litigation uh, for a proposed project at 1154 and 1170 Sonora Court, and there is nothing to report. And council also uh, held conference with legal counsel on anticipated litigation uh, related to IFPTE and Local 21 of the Sunnyvale Employees Association, and there is nothing to report. Thank you. Uh, next, we have two special orders of the day. Let me come to the lectern. Like it's working. There we go. Uh, before we get started, uh, we have a special presentation in honor of National Library Card Signup Month. The library's mission is to inspire a healthy community by fostering learning and play through progressive services and programs for all. A library card is a passport to many of the wonderful things that the library has to offer. It is a gateway to worlds of information, knowledge, and inspiration. It makes technology and electronic resources available to everyone, narrowing the digital divide. With a free library card from Sunnyvale Library, our entire community has access to more materials and digital content now more than ever. In honor of National Library Card Month, I would like to share a few statistics from our own library. There are currently 135,578 issued Sunnyvale Public Library cards. And this is one. Um, of those, approximately 90% are 
are issued to patrons 18 and older, and almost 10% are under 18. But the Sunnyvale Public Library proudly serves all ages and encourages all individuals, residents and non-residents alike, to obtain a library card. With all the free resources available at our library, um, including audiobooks, movies, state park passes, streaming services, world language content, large print materials, induction cooktops, and of course, numerous books and eBooks that just to name a few. And with the elimination of overdue fines and access to and access to e-materials 24 seven, there's never been a better time to get a Sunnyvale library card. Um, and, you know, it's just a fantastic use um, of enjoying the summer reading program and so many other programs that, that our library staff provides. Therefore, on behalf of the Sunnyvale City Council, I proclaim the month of September, 2023 as National Library Card Sign-Up Month in the city of Sunnyvale. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of our fantastic library staff and of course our director, Michelle Ferreira. Thank you. And next, um, for our second recognition, I'd like to invite council member Russ Melton to join me at the lectern. Thanks, Larry. This is uh, with regards to POW MIA Recognition Day. Um, thank you, Mayor, for the opportunity to speak. Every year on the third Friday in September, the nation remembers our service members and civilians who never returned home from war. Every American still missing and unaccounted for from past conflicts is entitled to one certainty that they will not be forgotten. Throughout American history, many men and women have bravely and selflessly served to protect and defend our nation. Some of those who answered the call to service were captured in conflict and imprisoned by our enemies. We recognize them for the courage and determination they showed in the face of unspeakable hardships. We also honor those who did not return, especially remembering the sacrifices of their families who must face each day without knowing the fate of their loved ones. On March 17, 2020, the Sunnyvale City Council unanimously adopted a resolution authorizing display of the POW MIA flag on Armed Forces Day, Memorial Day, Flag Day, Independence Day, National POW MIA Recognition Day, and Veterans Day. The city will raise the POW MIA flag on the morning of Friday, September 15th. We ask you to pause for a moment that day to give thanks for those who have been returned and to renew our pledge to those who are still missing and their families, the pledge, you are not forgotten. Thank you. Thank you very much, stay right here. Uh, so on behalf of the Sunnyvale City Council, it's my great pleasure uh, and honor to proclaim September 15th as POW MIA Day, recognition, POW MIA Recognition Day in the city of Sunnyvale. Thank you, and thank you for your service. Hey, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And next up, we have oral communications. 
Members of public will now have an opportunity to address council on topics not listed on tonight's agenda. This section is limited 15 minutes and may be extended or continued after public or public hearings section of the agenda. Individuals are limited to one appearance with a maximum up to three minutes per speaker. A reminder of the public, please submit a speaker card now to the city clerk, raise your digital hand or dial star nine on your telephone. If you wish to address council, I will call members of the public uh, in person first. And then the city clerk will ask remote participants to unmute their microphone when it's their turn to address council. Speakers will have three minutes to speak. Uh, before I get to the public, um, first I have a short uh, statement. Second. Um, let me give my short statement. You know, the Sunnyvale Code of Ethics and Conduct for elected and appointed officials directs us to act in a transparent manner to enable the public to obtain information about public official activities and the decision-making process. In that spirit, I wish to disclose the following information for purposes of transparency. Prior to the city council hearing on July 11th, 2023, for the adoption um, in the meeting for the adoption of the Moffat Park specific plan, I had a conversation with two council members about a variety of land use issues related to the plan. These conversations did not include a discussion of potential names for the neighborhoods in the plan area. I learned that those two council members had a separate conversation with a fourth council member. Their con that conversation was solely about the names of the neighborhoods in the plan area and no other aspects of the Moffat Park specific plan were discussed. The neighborhood names was not a topic that the two council members discussed with me. So although a specific issue, the, the specific issues discussed in these separate conversations did not overlap, both conversations were related to the Moffat Park specific plan. These conversations may have been a technical violation of the Brown Act, which prohibits serial meetings between a majority of members of the city council to discuss an item of business. Subsequently, the Moffat Park specific plan was heard at the at the at a properly noticed open public meeting on July 11th, 2023, where all the actions related to the plan were taken after council had heard extensive public comment and had discussions. To my knowledge, the two conversations that occurred prior to the meeting did not lead to any decisions or actions being taken by the majority of the city council outside of that public meeting. However, under Sunnyvale Code of Ethics and Conduct, we must comply with both the letter and the spirit of the law, which is why I felt it important to inform the public about what occurred. It is my understanding that the city attorney has discussed the Brown Act issues raised by these two conversations individually with each of the city council members, including myself. Council takes the Brown Act very seriously. I'm assuming that at least one council member will have a comment on this during our non-agenda item at the end of this meeting. And thank you for listening. Next, um, council member Cisneros has a short announcement. Uh, yes, thank you. I have one announcement today. Um, back to school. As summer ends, Sunnyvale students are back in school. Students all over the city and the South Bay will again be walking, biking, and some will even be driving to school for the very first time. To ensure a safe return and commute for everyone, here are a few pointers. 
obey the 15 mile per hour speed limits around schools and our public safety officers will be out there as a reminder. Drive carefully and observe all traffic laws. Be on alert for pedestrians, bicyclists and student drivers. And I'll just add, do not park in the bike lanes uh, for a pickup and drop off. I'm looking at you, Fremont parents. Uh, <laughs> please obey all crosswalk guards. Do not use disabled parking stalls as a drop-off. Be patient while driving, especially in school zones. We wish everyone a safe and happy return to an in-person school year. And that concludes our announcements. Thank you, Council Member. Let me go to the public. I have no speaker cards for anyone in person. City Clerk, do we have any remote participants wishing to speak under oral communications? Yes, Mayor. First up, we have Deshelle Leeds, followed by Peggy Brewster. Deshelle, you've been unmuted and have three minutes to address the City Council. Hi, uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak tonight. My name is Dashiell Leeds. I'm the Conservation Coordinator for the Sierra Club Loma Prieta Chapter. In our advocacy to the city regarding the Moffat Park specific plan, our chapter and other environmental groups, such as the Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society, asked the city to consider limiting public access to some of the Baylands levees. These requests were made in joint letters dated February 10th, 2023 and May 25th, 2023. In our February letter, we referenced a report by Sunnyvale resident and naturalist Kira Odd, who identified parallel levees that can be closed to public access with no impact to mobility and circulation. We would be supported, we would be supportive of council creating a study issue item to restrict these levees to only official uses. Doing so can mitigate some of the impacts of human encroachment and disturbance of wildlife and habitat. Thanks for your consideration. Thank you. Next, we have Peggy, followed by Lauren Ledbetter. Peggy, you've been unmuted and have three minutes to address the City Council. Hello, everybody. This is Peggy Shen Brewster with Sunnyvale for Equity and Education. As you know, and thank you, um, Council Member Cisneros, for reminding us to be safe. The past two weeks have been very eventful for families in Sunnyvale. Um, Sunnyvale School District students have returned on the 16th and high school students returned on the 21st. Um, and they both have improved transportation for our students. Um, Sunnyvale also added bus service to uh, provide transportation to Columbia Middle School. And as you may have heard, um, Fremont Union High School District has um, put together a, a whole new bus um, to, uh, uh, to speed um, transport for our, um, our students that are furthest north as well as an, a better bus pass application form and um, just more transparency. We have um, now free bus passes, VTA bus passes for all students north of El Camino Real, which has never been the case since the closure in 1981. So I wanna say, I wanna say thank you to council um, for all of your support of us in North Sunnyvale for our students uh, community-wide, no matter where you live, we appreciate that you are thinking about our whole community. And thank you for um, the passing of 23-06 study issue, which is um, still pending and we'd like to be um, part of the input of. I want to especially thank um, Council Member Dean for your support at VTA and for your advocacy and bringing the transportation challenges of our students in North Sunnyvale always to the forefront of conversation. Uh, regarding uh, the move to trustee areas, the first meeting was last Tuesday. Many Sunnyvale community members showed up asking for robust outreach to marginalized communities, 
for um, public mapping tools about the possibility of a citizens advisory committee. Thank you for those of you that attended and spoke and for those of you that followed up with me, I'm just asking how it went. I want to especially thank um, Jackie Guzman for her willingness to share information about successful districting and redistricting process with uh, the Democratic Club, the high school district, and with us at C. Sunnyvale is a model for how going to districts with strong input from the community makes representation stronger and more diverse. I mean, just look at you all. Uh, it's quite a change in our composition of city council after um, just two cycles after districting. So our success here in our city and our elementary school district can be models for what the high school district could be. Um, the next meeting uh, about moving to trustee areas at FUHSD is September 19th. I checked and you guys don't have a council meeting that night, so <laughs> you all to attend. Um, and finally, I want to remind you all that C advocates for transportation short-term, representation midterm, and also the location of a new high school in North Sunnyvale long-term. So a uh, high school in our area is much needed ever since 1981, it is still needed. And I appreciate you all keeping that top of mind um, in your conversations and your workings to support our students. Thank you so much for your partnership. And um, we are really, really appreciate your service to the community. Thank you, Peggy. Next, we have Lauren. Lauren, you've been unmuted and have three minutes to address the city council. Thank you. Good evening, council members and mayor. Um, I am speaking as a member of Sunnyvale Equity in Education, as well as a Fremont parent, a Fremont High School parent. Uh, I wanted to just report that the 255, the new bus, is working really wonderfully. My son has taken it a few times and reports that it is very full. Thank you so much, uh, particularly for Councilmember Dean, for your efforts in encouraging VTA to put that new service in. Um, so it seems to be working quite well. I also wanted to um, thank uh, Mayor Klein and Councilmember Sell for participating in the El Camino Real bike ride that was put on by um, Bike Sunnyvale and the Silicon Valley Bicycle Coalition. I also participated in that ride. We rode from Santa Clara Caltrain Station all the way up to Mountain View on El Camino Real, including through uh, the 85 interchange. And it was really eye-opening to see that. And I appreciate that you were able to make the time on a Saturday morning to do that. I also wanted to thank Councilmember Sell for attending the Silicon Valley Bike Summit this past week. Um, I was also at that, at that summit and I found it quite um, interesting. So again, thank you so much for really making yourselves available to the community and um, quite appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, we have Stephen Meyer. Stephen Meyer, you've been unmuted and have three minutes to address the city council. Hello. Hello, good evening, city council, mayor. Thank you for your attention tonight. I just want to piggyback on the comments regarding uh, driving around schools. Today, I made my little uh, foray around Fremont High School. And as I rode my bicycle by Fremont High School, there were multiple traffic violations and cars parked in the bike lanes. So yes, communication to the school and parents is good, but I think we need very visible enforcement. We need 
DPS to be out there and citating the violators because we have students stepping out in the middle of traffic, stepping in the bike lanes. We have cars parked in bike lanes. Uh, we have a tremendous problem with traffic safety around Fremont High School. And if you don't do something, someone will get injured or someone will die. So what can the city do to increase enforcement with DPS? Uh, at least some visibility. We, we need officers out there uh, viewing and citing the violations because otherwise we'll have students that get hurt or worst case, they will get injured critically and die. So thank you for your attention. We need more action. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Mayor, that was the final public speaker under oral communications. Okay, thank you. I will close oral communications. Next is our consent calendar. I will open the public comment on our consent calendar items. Members of the public wishing to address council, please submit a speaker card to the city clerk or use the raised hand feature now or dial star nine on your telephone to indicate that you wish to speak. I will call on members of the public participating in person first and then the city clerk will ask those remote participants to unmute their microphones when it's their turn to address council. Speakers will have three minutes to speak. I have no speaker cards on a consent calendar item. City clerk, do we have any remote participants wishing to speak on a consent calendar item? No, Mayor. Okay. Um, is there a motion from my colleagues? Uh, Vice Mayor Dean. Thank you. I move the consent calendar. Thank you. Councilmember Cisneros. Second. Thank you. City Clerk, please conduct a roll call vote. First up, Councilmember Srinivasan. Yes. Councilmember Mellinger. Yes. Councilmember Melton. Yes. Vice Mayor Dean. Yes. Councilmember Cisneros. Yes. Mayor Klein? Yes. Council Member Sal? Yes. The motion carries 7-0. Thank you. We'll move on to our general business. Our first item is item 23-0724. Proposed project appeal by the neighbors of a decision by the Planning Commission approved related to application of a 0.85 acre site to allow construction of 18 three-story condominiums um, and the retention of one single family house at 156 Crescent Avenue and the tentative map to create one lot in 19 condominium units at 148 and 156 Crescent Avenue. Is there a staff report? Yes. Oops. Is it on? I think so. Hello? Good evening, Mayor and Council Members. My name is Momo Ishijima. I'm the project planner for this uh, project at 148 and 156 Crescent Avenue. Uh, okay, the project is an appeal by the neighbors of a decision by Planning Commission approving a special development permit for 18 three-story condominium units and the minor improvements for an existing single-family house to be retained on uh, Crescent Avenue, 156 Crescent Avenue, and a tentative map to create one common lot and 19 condominium units. Oh, I'm sorry. The Planning Commission meeting was held on May 22nd, um, 2023, and the appeal was filed on June 2nd, uh, 2023. 
So here is an aerial photograph of the project site. The project site is delineated with the yellow uh, dashed lines. It's on 148, 156 Crescent, and it's on the south side of Crescent Avenue between Sunnyvale Saratoga Road. Fremont High School is just to the sort of the off the um, aerial to the left side. And uh, Sunnyvale Community Center is down the street um, on Crescent Avenue. Uh, as you can see, it's surrounded by uh, multifamily developments. So across the street is the Crescent Memory Care um, Senior Housing. And on the left-hand side is a senior apartment complex. Um, and on the east side is a condominium development called Crescent Commons. The Bali High apartment complex is just to the south um, with its entrance on Sunnyvale Saratoga Road. And there's a duplex also on the southeast side of the boundary line. This is a zoning map of the area. So as you can see, the brown um, area is zoned R4 and um, the, the density for the R4 is, uh, sorry, it's 25 to 36 dwelling units per acre. The area that's orange, including the, um, the project site is R3 zoning and it's 15 to 24 dwelling units per acre. And the area just off of um, Offenbeck and Manet Drive, some of those um, sites are zoned R2, which is seven to 14 dwelling, dwelling units per acre. So as you can see, this area is surrounded by um, high density, high to medium density zoning. So this aerial is um, showing some of the heights that are already existing at the site. So there is um, two homes currently on the project site. The one, uh, the house that is to be demolished, the 148 Crescent, is a two-story home and it's 25 feet in height. The historic home at 156 is single-story, but it has a kind of a attic area and it's about 21 feet. And there's a warehouse building um, on the south side of the home that's about 15 feet. The senior apartments next door is three stories, but it has um, kind of a raised. Um, sort of ground floor level. So it's 42 feet. And the condominium complex to the east side of that um, project site ranges in height from 32 to 35 feet. I just want to point out the R4 zoning where the senior apartments is allows for up to 55 feet um, height. The R3 zoning allows for 35 feet, which the project is proposing just under 35. And R2 zoning allows for 30 feet. This is a perspective of the um, project looking from Crescent and also the site plan. So as you can see, the site is narrow and fairly deep. It's about 200 and, um, oh, I'm sorry, 120 feet at Crescent. And then it narrows to about 105 feet um, behind, the, uh, behind the house. Um, 
they are proposing to demolish the house at 148 Crescent Avenue. And there is a private uh, driveway that goes down the middle. Um, and there are two, apart, uh, two condominium buildings. One is 10 units on the east side. I'm sorry, the west side. And then the, the um, condominium building behind the existing house is eight units. There are three stories two car garages for every unit. And um, there are also one uncovered parking space um, retained for the, the house right behind it. And also five guest parking spaces to the south side with some amenity space uh, with like bicycle racks, mailboxes, and um, kind of an open area for the, uh, the community to use. So this, um, project has been designed to have the emergency vehicle access and solid waste and recycling trucks to be able to access the site and turn around and uh, make the collections on site. So they will not be um, putting the trash bins out at Crescent. Uh, so the background on this um, property is that it is zoned R3 PD, medium density residential with a planned development um, a combining district. So as I mentioned, it uh, allows for 18 to 24 dwelling units per acre. This site is just under an acre, 0 0.85 acres, and it proposes 22.5 dwelling units per acre. This um, subdivision was uh, mapped in the 1920s. It was it's called the Easter Gables um, Poultry Farm Subdivision. And the house, the 156 house was constructed in 1927. Um, and this um, kind of, this is a unique um, subdivision. It's kind of like the Charles Weeks um, poultry farms that were that's in that was in Palo Alto so it's kind of modeled after that I believe and um, the the owners that were on site this is the parish um, Furia family uh, resided on the property for about 80 years but the um, the egg business so there, there was an egg poultry farm, and then they went into a more of a retail egg business where they were collecting the eggs from the other farms and they were selling it. And that business, I think, stopped in the 60s, 1960s. And after that, um, there was a, a rental of party equipment that was the business that was um, done by the Sons family. Um, so the site was um, added to the heritage to resource inventory in 1979, I believe. Um, and that was the, the Easter Gable streetscape. That's how it was um, labeled. There were about 10, 10 bungalows at the time. I think there's only about three remaining, including the house at 156 right now. Other sites have uh, turned over and redeveloped. So um, the Heritage Preservation Commission um, uh, approved the resource alteration permit on April 8th. It was a unanimous vote to, uh, to remove 148 Crescent Avenue from the inventory. It was um, determined not to be historic after the historical analysis was done. And then they also considered the impact of the property, of the historic property 156 
um, Crescent Avenue and the development behind it, and uh, they were able to approve the project. This um, action by Heritage Preservation Commission was not appealed. Um, the Planning Commission reviewed the project on May 22nd, and uh, the special development permit and tentative um, map uh, was approved on a 4-0 vote. So um, this is a list of some of the concerns um, that the neighbors, um, so there was an appeal letter and there were subsequent letters uh, that was received from the neighbors. Um, uh, and I'm just gonna summarize some of the um, points that were made in the appeal letter. So they were concerned about the number of units proposed on site and the availability of um, services, utilities and services to the site, uh, especially specifically about water. And um, they were also concerned that because this is close to schools and there are seniors um, living in the surrounding properties that the increase in traffic was a pedestrian safety concern. Also, um, the, the appellant noted that there is a lot of parking, overnight parking on Crescent. So the street was already congested with um, parking and that made it difficult for uh, street cleaning to occur because there was so much parking and that um, there was an accumulation of trash um, on, on the street. And um, she, um, the appellant also noted that there was some increase in crime um, on in this area, uh, specifically related to car vandalism and um, other theft. So there was a suggestion made in the appeal letter to reduce the units to nine or 10 units and to provide more parking um, at the site. So staff's response to the appeal letter, um, so just um, kind of summarizing in this slide, um, the proposed units and density is within the allowable R3 density. And um, there is a um, policy in the housing element to try to meet at least 75% of the density. Um, for development projects. Um, the capacity uh, related to services and utilities is um, already planned out in the general plan. So I wanna just point out that this zoning to R3 was, um, this site was zoned from interim agricultural to R3 zoning in the 1960s. So this site has been, and the surrounding area has been planned for this type of, um, intensity for over 60 years. And uh, we have also been able to retain a um, will serve letter from Cal Water, who is the servicing water uh, utility. And I think the copy of that letter has been provided to you. Um, about the height, um, these um, the project meets the height requirement um, at 35 feet which is, um, and it's also similar to the heights in the uh, direct adjacent neighbor, neighborhood. Um, the project um, is, uh, 
can apply the density, state density bonus law because it provides uh, two affordable units and um, with uh, fractional fractionable units meeting the um, state uh, minimum state density requirement. So they can apply the parking requirement of the state density um, law and they exceed the requirement by 13 uh, parking spaces. The, the street right now, if you go um, to the site, it kind of narrows um, because there's a bulb out in front of the uh, historic house. And as part of this um, development, there will be a dedication, a street dedication um, by easement and the, the width of the of Crescent Avenue will be um, aligned to meet the rest of Crescent Avenue. So there won't, you know, I think it, it will increase the, the um, safety um, as the, the future tenants or future homeowners of the project um, leave, leave the site onto Crescent Avenue, there'll be better visibility. Um, so regarding the access for solid waste and emergency vehicles, I touched on that during the site plan. Um, all the services will be done on site. So there you will not be seeing any bins out on Crescent. Uh, as part of the conditions of approval, there is a, a requirement to for the developer to prepare a construction management plan, which will include traffic and noise control. There will be someone assigned to be the noise coordinator as well as signage placed um, on, uh, on site. I think um, the applicant is well aware that there are seniors in the um, surrounding properties. So I'm sure they, they'll have a good working relationship. Um, well, well, we will encourage a good relationship with the um, surrounding properties. Um, so I've reached out to public safety um, and they are aware of some incidents that have happened in the past six months. And I believe um, there is a, there is a, um, <laughs> there's um, an effort to try to reduce um, these types of incidents in the um, surrounding area, but I, I don't think it's limited to Crescent Avenue. So, um, Next here is a, a quick um, just a look at the um, what the existing homes look like. So the house at 156 is the historic house, and it's a Craftsman bungalow. The house at 148 was constructed in the 50s, and there was a significant addition done in the 60s, at which added the two-story element in the back and um, more floor area. And uh, the house at 148 was. Um, determined not to be historic. So that will be um, demolished. And the house at 156, the applicant is um, pr proposing to do some cosmetic updates, changes, uh, updates to the roof material and siding, but for the most part, keep the, the craftsman look and appeal of the house. And as part of the conditions of approval from Heritage Preservation Commission, it was requested that a um, some type of a plaque be placed so that um, the history of the site could be um, commemorated through a plaque. So they will be installing that. 
This is the front elevation. So you can see the house in the front and the development in the back. So as part of the recommendation from the historic consultant, they wanted the Craftsman House to stand on its own merits. Um, so although the project has incorporated some Craftsman elements, um, they chose to go with a more vertical board and batten type of siding rather than have a um, horizontal siding all over and some stucco. And the horizontal siding can be seen in the insets um, beneath the uh, three-story windows and the second-story windows. And then you can see the gable ends have, have some craftsman elements with the exposed rafters. Um, here is the interior driveway view. Um, here again, they have incorporated some craftsman elements, but instead of highlighting a horizontal siding, it's more of a vertical board and batten with the um, gable ends. And they've also included um, windows on the garage doors to give it more interest. Um, this uh, view is along the side property lines. The entrance to the units will be from the side. And this side has a little bit more articulation with the um, with the second and third story elements with the offsets um, uh, of the um, of the facade in different materials. This side is the south elevation at the very end of the units. Um, and uh, this uh, is just a kind of a um, summary of the density bonus law. So the project is providing one very low and one low uh, income unit with a in lieu fee payment of the fractional 0 0.7. So they are um, eligible for applying the California state density bonus law. The applicant is entitled to one concession and on an unlimited number of waivers from development standards. The project is not seeking any concession, but um, they are seeking some waivers related to setbacks and uh, other development standards, which I will cover in the next slide. Um, so the side setback um, it, where the requirement is 12 feet, they're they're proposing seven feet six on the ground floor and 10 feet six on the second floor. And that we have a combined side yard setback requirement of 24 feet and they are proposing 15 feet on the ground floor, 21 feet on the second floor. The distance between buildings is a 26 foot requirement. This is between the historic house and the eight unit building. So they are requesting 20 feet six um, for that. And then both landscaping and usable open space, there are uh, changes to the, um, to the requirements uh, that they're proposing. And the garage size, um, so the minimum garage size typically is 400 square feet for a two-car garage, but since they are providing space for uh, the solid waste and recycling bins. We, um, our solid waste guidelines requires a 50 square foot additional area. And they are proposing 435, so it's 15 square feet less, but um, 
they're providing laundry services on different floors. So I think uh, they've demonstrated that they have enough space in the garage for that. Um, we are supportive, staff supportive of this. The lot is long and narrow. I think the setback requirements may be a little bit difficult to um, provide as well as because they're keeping the historic house, um, the distance between the historic house and the eight unit building we are supportive of. Um, so um, neighborhood impacts. Um, so I we believe that the retention of the historic house um, will maintain a visible presence of the heritage resource on Crescent Avenue and its history. And uh, the inclusion of the plaque will, you know, help um, the community continue to be able to enjoy the history. The house at 148 Crescent will be demolished. Um, the proposed townhouse buildings are similar in height and density to the surrounding multifamily developments. And um, we believe that there's su sufficient separation and landscaping around the historic house to sort of um, be able to pre preserve its integrity. Um, we had um, a community outreach meeting, um, which was uh, on Zoom, but we had about seven or eight um, community members that participated and we did not have any opposition um, voiced at the community meeting. And we had a study session um, with the planning commission. And then we had, um, uh, let's see, we had a Heritage Preservation Commission public hearing at which, at which the hearing, uh, we did have a member of the public who has submitted um, a letter to this um, appeal also. She uh, voiced some concerns related to the traffic construction noise and the, um, the number of units. And um, at the planning commission meeting, we had um, a member, uh, uh, actually a neighbor that lived in the senior apartment complex right next door. His um, unit was actually closest to the 148 um, Crescent uh, house. He lived on the third floor and he was um, concerned about the height of the project and the um, and the uh, impact on his um, sort of um, quality of life. And uh, also the member of the public that spoke at the Heritage Preservation Commission also called in um, uh, citing the same uh, concerns that she had about traffic and the density and the construction noise. And we had one other member of the public who said that she was not noticed. Um, no, she did not receive a notice. And um, subsequently, um, admin staff and uh, actually we had to involve the GIS staff as well because there was a miss in our database. So for whatever reason, this one particular parcel was not included. And so we have corrected that as part of um, this uh, appeal, noticing that they were included in the notice. So, um, so this is just a summary of the Planning Commission action. Um, they had approved the special development permit and tentative map um, and um, staff recommendation for the appeal tonight is alternative one to deny the appeal and affirm the Planning Commission's decision to approve the project. That concludes my 
executive staff report. And if there are any questions, I am available to answer questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, there are multiple questions. Uh, first up is Councilmember Melton. Yeah, thank you, Mayor Klein. Hi, Momo. Nice to see you. Great presentation. Thank you very much. I think I only just have a couple of questions that I just want to make sure I'm perfectly clear on. The first one is the zoning, R3 zoning. And thank you for spelling out when the zoning was adopted. I think I heard you say it's like 60 years ago that this was changed from ag or something to R3 zoning. So the zoning has not been a mystery for 60 years. Anybody can go look up what the zoning is and understand that, right? That's correct. Um, it was like ordinance number 993. It was like a three-digit ordinance number. So that's how long it's awesome. been zoned. Awesome. That way, um, it the PD component was added later, um, but um, yes, it's okay. been that way for a long time. So it's been quite some time, Momo, since I was on the planning commission. But one thing I always like to just double check on is what I refer to as the min and the max. So according to the zoning code or the, the zoning of this parcels, when I multiply that out by the size of the land, the most number of units that could be built here is 20. Did I get that correct? I'm that's, looking at this on the data table. That's by the correct. Way. Yeah. yeah. And then council 20. has 20.5, I think was okay. Yeah. And then council has a policy that says you have to build at least 75% of that max number. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. So that puts me at sort of a min of 15 and a max of 20. Mm -hmm. right? That's sort of the range that I'm looking for. And I see that this proposal here is for 19, which fits between the min and the max. Is that all? operating correctly from yes, what I'm I, saying? your calculation is correct. Okay, thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Um, the second thing that I spent some time thinking about is um, that this is currently on well water. I was the guy who asked the council member in the Monday 8 a.m. questions about uh, the conversion from well water, not to Sunnyvale, but this is under Cal water. So they've committed. I read that there's like a two year window that Cal water absolutely commits to be able to service residential water needs on this. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's serviced by Cal water. Okay. And um, then you just need to understand Cal Water, right? They're a traditional water purveyor. This is their line of business. They know where they're going to get the water from to service their customers' needs. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then the final thing I just wanted to double check on is the reach code, all electric. So the new residential that's being built here is going to be all electric. Is that a correct statement? Yes. The new um, townhomes will be all electric. Okay. But the house will retain the gas line that it has currently isn't that always the the age-old question right is retrofitting of older um, single-family residential to all electric which i i agree with does not need to happen on on this particular instance but the new things that are being built are going to be all electric that's correct okay very good thank you for answering my questions thank you thank you uh next up is councilmember mellinger Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. I have a number of questions. Before I get to that, I want to say that I did visit the site today from the street. Um, so first question. Um, so this project was decided by Planning Commission, what, end of June, roughly? Um, May 22nd. May 22nd. And the appeal was filed when? 
June 2nd, I believe. June 2nd. Okay. Um, since that time, have the developer been able, has the developer been able to work with city staff on approvals and so forth, or have they just been on hold since the appeal was filed on June 2nd? There was some interest by the developer to see if they can submit for building permit at their risk, um, but they have not yet done so, so they have been on hold. Okay. Um, if the developer is on the call, uh, you should expect that I will likely be asking you a question or in the room, as the case may be, you should expect that I will likely be asking you a question about carrying costs and the impact of the delays on the project. Um, next, this is a, can you talk to a little bit about how uh, the traffic safety component of the construction management plan? Um, you know, will there be, you know, if there are trucks going in and out, will there be people directing traffic? You know, how are we going to ensure pedestrian safety during construction? So um, the construction management plan is a requirement in our conditions of approval. And typically we ask the developers to submit a separate administrative application for review of the construction management plan. It will get routed to planning as well as uh, traffic and um, public works and part of that review will include truck routes safe traffic control measures that would need to be placed and also like noise and dust control and um, having notices sent out to neighbors as well as like idling of you know machines and um, other equipment so it's a comprehensive review of that review so it it may um, I can't speak for what um, the traffic's requirements may be, but there may be, um, you know, especially for onloading and offloading of large equipment, there would probably be some type of uh, staff presence to um, direct traffic. And it sounds like this is the sort of thing that's uh, very standard for you all to work with. Would you say that's fair? That's correct. Yes. All right. Um, so... I'm looking at the waivers they were asking for from the density bonus. Can we pull that slide up again? I'm sorry, I don't remember which slide that is exactly. Oh, thank you. So uh, I think it's the next slide actually, the six waivers. Okay, so if I'm remembering my land use correctly, let's pretend the state density bonus were not a thing for a moment. Okay, let's pretend there were no state density bonus, that they were asking for these waivers as variances on the project. Now, if I rem am remembering right, mm -hmm. the variances that you, the findings you have to make for a variance are essentially one, that there is something special about the lot given the historic property and the narrow depth, uh, the narrow and deep shape of the lot. I think that's one that can be made. Two, that you are not uh, imposing negative externalities on the neighbors from doing this. And three, that you're not providing a privilege that the neighbors, neighboring uh, properties wouldn't have. That's correct. Um, as this project is a special development permit, it would not be um, approved as a variance. It would be considered a deviation that could be approved as part of the special development permit. But you're right, Ms. Um, Council Member, in terms of the types of findings that we would have to make, um, the 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 those would be the that, findings, right? That's right. Yeah. And would it be fair to say that those would be reasonable findings to make 
for this set of uh, waivers? I believe so. And I think that's um, the conclusion that we drew um, as staff, although under this law, they are um, they are entitled entitled yes. for these waivers, but we were able to support it also because of the configuration of the law. Right. So Council essentially, Council the conclusion Member. is, you know, obviously that would be. Oh, sorry, Ms. Ryan. I, I just wanted to um, make a slight technical correction to the response that with the special development permit, you don't make the same findings that you do for a variance. You don't have to show that there's a hardship. Mm -hmm. um, you do have to show that it's consistent with the general plan and it's not an, an impact on, on other properties. And typically what we look for is, um, are, there, are there constraints? So certainly if it, you could make the variance findings, uh, sometimes it makes for a better project by not a strict application of those standards. So th that it's, it's a, um, uh, it's a different set of findings that you would use, um, oh. but the, the planners know about variances and they think very clearly about those as yep. they're making the other findings. Yeah, sort of the broader point I was getting at was even if they didn't have the density bonus that said they could have this, this would be a reasonable set of deviations if, to offer. Um, okay, um, so noticing, you mentioned a noticing issue with one resident being in some kind of gap or hole in the GIS system. Are we sure, you know, are we sure that everything else other than that one issue was noticed properly? Uh, I believe so. Um, we have double checked the list. Okay. Um, so, uh, and the GIS team is aware of this. So they are working on correcting any other issues that there might be. Excellent. Um, lastly, and this is a question for the city attorney. Um, and I emailed the city attorney about this uh, this morning. Um, I believe I CC'd Ms. Ryan and Mr. Steffens as well. Um, if we were to uphold the appeal and deny the project, what sort of legal recourse would the developer have against us? And, you know, I'm in particular looking at what sort of monetary damages might be assessed against the city if there were an adverse ruling under, for instance, the Housing Accountability Act. One more. There you go. There we go. Um, first, it's always um, not possible to predict the outcome, though in this case, I think it would be very clear because of the density bonus law and the fact of the project meeting both our zoning requirement and also our general plan uh, policy. Um, and therefore, the risk would be significant. If we were not to prevail, we would obviously have to pay the developer's attorney's fees and costs. Mm -hmm. uh, these costs could reach to, you know, it's hard to always estimate these things, but $100,000 probably would be, especially if it went to appeal. Um, and then the court could also impose fines mm -hmm. against the city of at least $10,000 per housing unit. With yep. a maximum fine of fifty thousand per housing unit, if the court finds that the city acted in bad faith, which would be a fairly strong argument in this case, as which I said earlier, it meets the zoning requirements, is compliant with our general plan policy, and all of the waivers and the parking are all driven by the density bonus law. All right, thank you. And so, just to do a little bit of math on Deus. 
there are 19 homes here. Well, 18 net new ones because we're keeping the uh, original oh, 17 net new ones, let's say, because the uh, there's two homes there currently. Um, 17 times 50 is $850,000. Even if this were not fully rejected, but brought down to what the neighbors were saying, there'd be a cause for action. There could be up to $500,000 in penalties since the neighbors are asking for about a 10 unit reduction. Um, and that's on top of legal fees. So there would be a substantial chunk of change to be paid quite likely were we to deny this project. Uh, that is correct. If we were to lose, that is definitely correct. All right. Um, that does it for my questions. I have one brief statement I want to make on this. Uh, in the interest of full transparency, since this is a land use issue, I was the council liaison to the Heritage Commission when they heard this item. At the time, the Heritage Commission got themselves into a bit of a parliamentary snafu, and I had to uh, come up to the dais and help uh, untangle that, but at no point during that discussion did I get into the merits of the item. But I just wanted to have that stated very clearly uh, for the public record. And with that, uh, I yield back. Thank you very much. Thank you, Councilmember. Um, next up is Councilmember Cisneros. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, staff, for the presentation. Um, not a ton of questions because it was very clear, and I watched the Planning Commission meeting, and um, it was very much the same, and I really enjoyed the Planning Commission discussion about this. I, so I think, like, beyond that, I, like, I feel like I have a good understanding. But uh, just building off the question that was just asked, to be clear, in addition to paying the what we're calling a sizable chunk of change, the project would still go through if we were to um, lose in, in a court of law. Um, yes, the, the court would approve the project and then impose the fines, and we would have the obligation to pay attorney's fees as all part of the state law. Okay, okay. And, and that I, ho I hope is helpful because, you know, it wouldn't, in this case, stop the project, right, as intended uh, or as requested in the letters. So um, there was, there was a, a part there. In response, in the responses to council questions, there was an interesting sentence and i i missed this in in uh the materials provided it it was mentioned that future residents would be required to use their assigned parking spaces for parking and not storage as conditioned what does that mean i was not aware that that one could do such a thing there is a um condition that was approved um with the approved project about parking management and um, in that condition, it's a list of fairly long um, requirements, but it, it does say that the, the uh, parking should be used for parking purposes. And um, we are noting that <laughs> um, tonight because um, it, it seems to be an interest of the neighborhood so that we'd like to encourage the developer to make sure that these um, parking spaces be available for parking. Yeah, and I'm so interested, maybe the developer could help me understand, but how that would be enforced, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, as I think was correctly noted in some of the letters from the neighbors, um, people tend to use that space to store their belongings, their stuff. People have a lot of stuff, they use it all the time. Uh, I think I saw a study where something like over 80% of all garages are used to store stuff and not cars. So I'm just so interested to hear how um, 
one would enforce that. I think it's a great idea. I just didn't even know you could. So um, looking forward to having that conversation. I, I can provide you a little sure. bit of a response to that. Um, it's not the first project where this has been a requirement. So it's a fairly typical um, condition of approval um, and is, is probably a little bit um, more needed in a situation such as this, where the parking is less than what the citywide might otherwise require. Um, but even on those other situations, it does go to the conditions of approval, which are then um, signed by the applicant and recorded against the property. So the future owners and the future homeowners association, they would be the enforcers of that. Um, so if they had a parking problem, um, they could look at themselves and say, well, are any of us not using our assigned parking for parking? So that's, that's how it's been. Um, uh, uh, managed in the past. Thank you. That answers my question of who would enforce that. Cause I was wondering, does the city come in with code enforcement? Does the developer stay involved? HOA makes perfect sense. We, we, we could, we, we've not been asked to do that. Okay. We could. That's so interesting. Um, can we just, so we talked about properly noticing, we believe we have, but can we talk about what proper noticing is? Like what was the pro if, if somebody can tell me the process of when the neighbors were reached out to, what opportunities for engagement were offered, just so we can get an idea because it was taught, uh, you know, it was mentioned, wow, there's, there was really low engagement in the pro in, after the noticing process. So there's this thought that it wasn't properly noticed. So I'd love to just get a sense of well, what do we do to engage people? So there's a council and an administrative policy for noticing mm -hmm. um, guidelines. And uh, we applied, because it's a three-story building, we applied the 1,000-foot radius noticing. Um, the city staff prepares the noticing list, which includes property owners, and they may not be the people that live at that property. So we have um, a list of where the owners live. So we, we provide a notice to them. We also provide noticing to the tenants of apartment complexes. So we have a listing of the addresses for that and we um, notify as occupants. And also um, if it's a commercial or industrial property, we have a separate list of contacts for those types of properties and the individual um, tenants within such commercial property. Um, and it could be, you know, like there is a, um, I think a water site right nearby as well. So if it's a public utility, we would notice them too. So for this project, it was a thousand foot radius. And we also include neighborhood association um, email contacts if we are aware of any nearby. Um, and so for the community outreach meeting, we provided the notice list to the applicant and they mailed out the, um, and it's typically, we try to get it out two weeks prior to the date of the community meeting. Now for the Heritage Preservation Commission, um, it was a 300 foot radius. We don't have a extended noticing radius for that. And then for the Planning Commission, um, there's no noticing requirement for the study session. Um, but there is a requirement for the public hearing. So for the planning commission public hearing, we sent out a thousand foot radius notice again. But this uh, particular property that was um, a mist mm -hmm. is within that 
it's really within like a hundred foot. Mm. So um, the um, the owner actually saw the notice board that was placed in front of the property mm. and um, attended the planning commission meeting because of that. And that's okay. actually good part of the reason why we have notice boards because some addresses may be incorrect. You know, we're going by assessor's data um, on that. So um, it's to be able to, you know, have an expanded outreach, not just relying on the notices also, but also the agenda that's posted online as well. So awesome. And, and was this the appeal hearing noticed? Yes. Okay. To the neighbors in the same way that thousand. Yeah, that's a thousand foot. Okay. Thank you know, thank you so much for just walking me through like all all of the different things that were noticed and not noticed. That's very helpful. So it sounds like there was outreach, you know, a good handful of times mm-hmm. through the mail and all but one of these folks, which we've now corrected, so apologies to them, have, have received it. Awesome. I just wanted to be clear. Um, have we looked into whether there is a severe shortage of parking in this area generally? Not that we, not that according to law, we can do anything about their parking requirements as a result, but I'm just wondering if that is a significant concern to the neighborhood or if we've looked into that. I um, personally have not been down crescent in the evening mm-hmm. but from what i've what the um, appellant has noticed um there there is a lot of overnight parking mm-hmm. and that may be coming from the apartment um complexes that are a lot of there are a lot of complexes along sunnyville saratoga road so um there may be, and it doesn't seem like there's any on-street parking on sunnyville saratoga so they may be utilizing Crescent to be able to park. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. That That's really interesting. And, it, you know, that we have parking permit programs and, and other ways uh, a city could go and mitigate a severely impacted area. I'm not sure if this would apply, but there are ways, and I'd encourage any member of the public to reach out to the city about addressing those concerns um, because we do have ways to do that. There have been neighborhoods in my district where that has uh, come up and been addressed that way. Um, I think that's all my questions for now. I look forward to hearing from members of the public, and I appreciate your time and your answers. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Council Member. Next up is Council Member Sell. Hi. Thank you for the really detailed presentation and the good information you provided in our um, responses on Monday morning. Um, so. In terms of the height and the density of this development, um, do they um, uh, do they sometimes um, developments can um, exceed its height that uh, we define, and they use this density bonus law, Um, and then sometimes they can um, exceed the density that we have a goal for and they use the density bonus. So I was just wondering like, um, how is this in terms of, do they use the density bonus for this or do they stay within our? um... They are utilizing the density bonus for this project, but not for height or increase in units. They are meeting the requirements of the zoning code under the R3 development standards. Okay, So, and what is their, the height of this zoned area and how, are they in terms of that height? So the R3 zoning maximum height is 35 feet and they're proposing just under 35 feet, but 
pretty much 35 feet. Okay. And if they applied like density bonus, that would, could be higher because they could say that we need to build more housing and so That's correct. Yeah. The density bonus law does um, have some provisions for increase in height and units, but uh, for this project, they're not applying that. So this development could have taken advantage of the density bonus laws to have more density and more height, but they chose not to. That's correct. Okay. And um, there's this law SB 330. And um, does that allow a city to reduce a height of a zoned area? Or does that law allow us to reduce the density of a zoned area once it's zoned for that? Could you talk about SB 330? Like, or is it SB 330? Yeah, I talked about it in my question. Just kind of an overview of SB 330. Um, can we, as a city, once something is zoned for something for a certain height and a certain density, can a city just reduce the height and reduce the density? You, so there's a, a couple variations on that. So first you cannot downzone a property um, unless you create another uh, housing replacement essentially for that zoning. And in this case, the applicant had already applied so that by the time it was approved, there would be no way that the council at this stage would be able to say, okay, we're gonna downzone this property because we're gonna upzone this property. So there, there is no option for the council to consider any sort of downzoning, changing heights or density or any of the other zoning requirements. So if we just decided to like reduce the height or reduce the density, and the applicant said, um, you're violating SB 330. Is that what they could sue us for? Or is that where we, the state we, could yes. come, um, come? And even, even without uh, SB 330, there is um, an issue that's raised by spot zoning. So that in this particular case, if I remember correctly, uh, it's very similar to a case, I believe that came out of Santa Rosa, where that you have a property that you're changing the zoning to reduce it while all the properties around it have a similar height, there could be an argument regardless of any state law on spot zoning, that you're picking out one individual property and taking an individual zoning action towards that property. And that, that would be illegal even prior to these laws. Okay. And then how does this, um, the parking, the number of parking spaces that is being planned, compared to our city um, recommendations and what the state um, would mandate in terms of parking. I think I asked that in my Monday questions, but I just wanted us to review that with the audience. So um, let's see, under the zoning code requirement, they would be, uh, the project would be required to provide 45 parking spaces. Um, however, in applying the state density bonus um, law, it would be, um, they would be at 24 parking spaces. The project is providing 37. So it's over 13 spaces over the state um, requirements compared to the um, 
to the city's requirements there under by eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And um, one of my uh, Monday morning questions was talking about ownership, ownership opportunities. And so I believe these are ownership opportunities. And how often does that happen in new developments for Sunnyvale or in developments in general? Is that New developments, is that frequent to have ownership opportunities? It's, it's over the last number of years, it's been about 50% of the new units are rental and 50% are ownership opportunity. Um, in the last couple of years, if you only took the last couple of years, there were some very large rental only projects. Um, in some cases, the rental projects uh, have filed a map that would allow them to convert the site to condominiums in the future. So there's there's a it's an apartment now, but it could be ownership later. They spelled my name wrong, I just noticed. <laughs> Some, somebody will get that corrected for me, right? <laughs> okay. I'm a little sensitive about that. Okay. And then also in the Monday questions, um, I asked about affordability, like, and I asked like, you know, how much affordability is there? And um, out of like, I think, we could review that. I think it was like about 60,000 housing units. There's only 2,000 that are affordable, which is like about like a really small percentage that is affordable. So although there is only two units being affordable for this, that two units, does that have, yeah. Excuse me, you have to recognize that um, the city probably had 40,000 housing units before there was an affordable housing um, requirement for new development. So if you look at new development that has occurred since the city implemented its programs starting in the early 1980s, then you're gonna show a higher percentage of those units as deep restricted. Um, so our, the early programs were for 20 years. And so all of those programs, all of those housing units sort of have aged out of, of those requirements. So I think- But we have a longer requirement. Questions, it said like there's 3% affordable housing. Is that the right number? Something like, if you do the math. Yeah. So although this is just two affordable housing units, two, is at least, you know. It meets our 15% minimum. Yeah. Okay, that's all my question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Council Member. Next is Council Member Srinivasan. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, thanks a lot for the presentation. Uh, uh, I visited the website, uh, I visited the site, not website. Uh, it's in my district. And then I have watched the entire planning commission meeting also then reached out to uh, all the residents who spoke at the meeting and then uh, left them my card. So far, I haven't received any comments or any uh, uh, feedback from the residents. But having said that, some of my concerns are pedestrian safety, especially the vehicles coming out of the uh, property. So, you mentioned that there will be some mitigation done, especially the visibility of the pedestrian. Is there any other thing? Uh, I, I use that road quite regularly, and then it's very, very widely used by children and then uh, students going to Fremont High and then seniors. 
who are walking around the community center uh, area. So I would recommend adding more mitigation such as hums or something like that, especially for the vehicles coming out of the property, right? So that's one comment. And then on slide 16, I go back to slide 16. You mentioned about the distance between the building. There is a waiver which is asked uh, from 26 feet to 20 feet point six. So is that sufficient? I'm not worried about the garbage trucks and all those things because they can have their own speed limit, but I am more concerned about the emergency vehicles. Is right. that a standard length or are we compromising somewhere else? The, the distance between buildings, um, between the two townhome buildings are not being affected by this uh, waiver. This um, 20 feet, six inches is between the historic home and the um, eight unit building. So oh, there's no um, okay. there's no vehicle passage other than the oh, uncovered uh, parking space. Thank you, thank yeah. you for the so, clarification. I was wondering about the building uh, distance between the two buildings. Yeah, we would typically not um, agree to um, any uh, deviations from that standard. Yeah, yeah, thank you, because I was really concerned that an emergency situation that variance would be really really critical. Thank you for clarifying that. I also liked your response saying that parking will be used for parking only because we don't want to stress already a situation uh, parking on the streets. So if some way the developer, the project uh, poser can ensure that that would be really very, very good idea. Um, I also, uh, yeah, the, the notification, I pointed out one of the small errors there, the number in the public notice, instead of 146, it was 140. One, instead of 148, it was 146, Crescent right. Avenue. Uh, that error was on the notice board, yeah, but yeah. not on the notices yeah. that were mailed to the... Okay. Uh, Residents. Thank you. And then you mentioned about solid waste collection at the end of the building. Can you uh, talk about that? So the way that the solid waste collection will work at this site is um, instead of um, each resident taking their bins out to Crescent Avenue, what they will be doing is they will be placing the bins in front of their garage door. Okay. And when the solid waste truck comes in, onto the private driveway, they would go down each unit and collect one side, and then they will turn around at the south end and then go out by collecting um, the bins on the opposite side. And then they will be able to move out of Crescent with the front of the truck, not okay. backing out okay. onto Crescent. I think that's a very, very good idea. Otherwise, you will have 19 more bins on the Crescent Avenue. Right. Right. So, and then 19 plus uh, recycling and other things. Right. Yeah. So, uh, those are my questions. Thank you very much. I will wait for public comments. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Council Member. Um, 
I have several questions. Uh, first, to Councilmember Cisneros's question about tra about parking. You know, I run through this this street probably once a week at least, and I will say that there is a um, an issue. Well, let's say let's say street parking is very well utilized at least early in the mornings and late at night. So so that, but I look at you know, the, the HOA requirements that are fairly standard on multifamily and the two units per or two parking spots per unit. I do think that that at least helps. Um, let's talk a little bit about the alignment of Crescent. And so one of the things that this project's doing is basically making the street a little bit safer by, by getting rid of kind of a pinch point along that road. Part of condition conditions of approval is TM5 that requires street dedication in the form of an easement. And I'm just trying to figure out because it's it's really increasing the street width at that point, why it would be an easement or not, um, let's say, a, a permanent dedication to the city. Because aren't, aren't we in charge of, so it's it's the who is in charge of the ongoing upkeep of not the gutter, well, conceivably the gutter, but mainly the street itself and the repaving. I'm assuming the, the city's taking control of that, but I don't see that specifically in the easement language and the, the conditions of approval. Um, well, that's a condition from the Public Works Department, but it, I believe it's a fairly standard practice these days for all of the developments um, that it's not a fee dedication that it's an easement dedication. I believe the ongoing maintenance of the street will be um, the city's responsibility, but uh, Trudy, would you be able to? Um... That's correct. So um, it, it just means that if this street were ever abandoned as a public street, um, it would revert to that, that owner. Um, it, in this form of dedication, but it would be dedicated, would be considered public right of way, and the city would maintain it from the from what's the new property line, um, which would include um, sidewalk and landscape strip, curb gutter, street. Thank, thank you for that, and thank you for the clarification. I thought that was the case, but I just wanted to make sure it, it didn't seem well called out, and I just wanted to make sure that that, and I remember there was a comment that and looking back, I couldn't find it about who took care of that street, whether or not it was during the planning commission, or I couldn't couldn't find it when I went back after reading, after getting to the end and having that question, I couldn't find that actual easement question. So, so I appreciate that clarification. Uh, so let's go to the water, and and you know, Councilmember uh, Melton already brought up Cal Water. Their letter is useful but it specifically starts a clock ticking as of April 25th of this year. Assuming that this project takes more than a year, more than a year and a half at this point to get constructed, there seems to be kind of an out from Cal Water that they're not fully committed or they would, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be on the hook to provide water on this site. And I'm just trying to get a better understanding of from a process standpoint, you know, I'm assuming that that's not the case, that, that you know, from a good business standpoint, they will have water two years from now, 
or a year and a half from now when this project is still under construction and maybe completing two years from now, assuming, assuming you know, where things stand now. But what's the what's the process of getting that extended? And two years to me seem to be a short period of time considering where this project is today. I think um if the project were delayed in construction, that there would be efforts made from both the applicant or the developer, as well as our public works department to get an updated letter um, assuring service. Uh, and from what I understand with Cal Water, they have various water sources. It's not just from the um, aquifer below uh, the city, but also that they have um, agreements with Hetchetchi and the San Francisco Public Utility um, District to um, get water from that source as well. So I'm, I'm sure there would be an effort that would be required to update that letter. Okay, I, I, and I appreciate that. Yeah. That that makes sense. I And I assume this is, you know, from a practice standpoint, that seems completely reasonable. That being said, you know, they're very clear about their two-year two -year time and, you know, it's it's, the we're not on the hook or or you know conceivably we would extend but no requirement to and i just wanted to make sure that that was fine and seems like a conservative commitment okay thank you for that uh and then so with nine years on the planning commission i've heard lots of developers make commitments verbally in meetings mm -hmm. and then not following through if it wasn't part of the conditions of approval. Mainly it's it's unless it's in, in writing, it isn't there. So from the Heritage Commission, they requested a plaque from a historical standpoint, but and the developer sounds like they're completely on board of putting a plaque in on the on the on the developer's dime, I'm assuming, not the city's dime. But I didn't see that as a condition of approval. So is that commitment there? Is that need to be added to the conditions of approval or, or yes, what? Yes, we modified the conditions of approval for the Heritage Preservation Commission action, which was the resource alteration permit. So it had a separate list of conditions for that. Um, and we modified that to add the plaque. Okay. So I will make sure that that is um, followed through. Okay. And we will we'll need to discuss where and what size and what content. And, and I think that we they left it up to staff or the director of community development to review and uh, make a decision on that. And I saw that comment. I didn't see, and maybe it was I got lost in conditions of approval. I would assume that there would have only been a single list of conditions of approval. And so my my only question is, do we uh -huh. need to add it as I'll say the the planning commission's conditions of approval are usually the superset, and I'm not. I just wanted to make sure that that didn't need to be added back into that from a staff standpoint. I don't believe so. Okay. It was a separate action, and it was not appealed. So, thank you. And and this kind of goes to some of my Monday morning questions. Uh, and just looking at the design, and I understand. There were different guidelines placed in after this project had already been um, submitted, but looking at colors, looking at window treatments, you I would like a little more feedback on, you know, to me, the design, uh, looking down this narrow driveway, 
so, seemed repetitious, especially from a color standpoint, conceivably the window treatments and what had been worked out with the applicant from that standpoint. So I want to give you a little bit of a background on this. The initial project um, was to demolish both houses and the design that was submitted was more of a mission or a Spanish style project. And I think that was kind of tying into maybe Fremont High School, you know, um, but after the historical analysis was completed and that um, the loss of the, the house at 156 would become a significant impact, the applicant um, decided to preserve the house. And rather than having a craftsman style house at the front with a Spanish style development behind it, they um, went and designed something that was in keeping with the craftsman look. Um, and then we, before we went to Heritage Preservation Commission, we had some input from the historical consultant on what they thought uh, about the revised um, design. And uh, the, the recommendation that we got was that, that it shouldn't be too overly um, strong on the craftsman style, that we should highlight the uh, historic resource first and then take in elements. But we always had some issues with the, the specific um, facade uh, along the private driveway. We, we did feel that it was a little bit too, um, you know, kind of plain and not too much variation between each unit. So we, we did have that issue. Um, but um, so having said that, um, you know, because of this SB 330 um, state law, the, um, the applicants were not really required to um, respond to this sort of subjective, you know, um, recommendations related to design, but they were, they had been willing to work with us. So they went from the Spanish styles and then they incorporated the craftsmen. And then after the, you know, the heritage um, or the historical consultants input, they created another version, but that, version which was considered as the alternate version during the study session was a little bit um a little bit beyond too far from the craftsman look so we were kind of caught in a place where staff liked the original craftsman design that they presented except for the facade on the private um, driveway um, and the alternate look was too far removed from the craftsman. So we brought both to the planning commission to see what their input would be. And after their input, which was also to include the lights on the garage and to have some variation, mm -hmm. and they spoke to the same things. It was just too flat. You know, there wasn't a lot of variation. The colors were, um, you know, not um, robust, but um, we gave the recommendation to the applicants and it was really up to them. They could have come back to planning commission with the exact same um, design and not made any changes. And that would have been what they would need to make a decision on, but they incorporated some suggestions. I thought they provided a good faith um, sort of, you know, uh, try in trying to improve it, not to the extent that we wanted to see a change on the particularly uh, along the driveway. 
Okay. So. And then just, and that'll be a question to the applicant. So, you know, to me, to me, it was, so the plans that we saw or what went to the planning commission mm -hmm. and you had a supplicant, a, a supplemental document kind of talking a little bit about colors and, and features to some degree, but I didn't know if any of that had been incorporated back into that driveway system to, you know, to me, it was the repetition of windows and, and, you know, doorways ex exactly the same along both sides, which, you know, is um, architecturally has some issues, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. So thank you. Um, that was all of my questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next up, we have Councilmember Mellinger. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. I have one other question, and then I actually have something I wanted to call back to Councilmember Cisneros question about parking on. Um, what fee did the appellant have to pay to file the appeal? Uh, $290. $290. All right. Thank you. Would you say that that fully covered staff time and expense in preparing this item? Um, well, just given the amount of time staff has been in this meeting, probably not. Um, so I don't think the appeal fees have covered the full expenses. Some cities have chosen to do that. Um, it, in Sunnyvale, we want to make sure that um, in the past have wanted to make sure that appeals are accessible to everyone. Um, so we put a modest um, fee on that. All right. Just ballpark. I don't expect anything close to an exact figure ballpark how much would you expect the city has spent processing this appeal including um, tonight's meeting and I, I don't know i'm not comfortable like pulling a number out okay um, but the analysis for the project's all been done so it's really the staff time to prepare the um the report and to send the new notices out all right thank you um so i think i'm the only council member here who lives in a townhouse complex um so one of the things, uh, the issue of parking has become newly relevant for me uh, because my deck has been demolished and rebuilt. And in the process of that rebuilding, all my patio furniture has had to move into my garage, which means my car is now having to park somewhere else. And there are rules clearly stated on our HOA website that due to conditions of approval from the city when the complex was first entitled, I believe, 40 years ago, residents are not allowed to park in any of the guest parking spaces. Um, so I've been parking on the street uh, and I'm going to have to continue doing that until my deck is back and my patio furniture is back on the deck. Um, so the HOAs do, at least in my case, the HOA does enforce this. Um, so I just wanted to add that bit of a uh, bit of lived experience <laughs> uh, for folks. And with that, uh, that does it for my questions and comments. Thank you very much. That was the last of council member comments. Thank you. I'll go ahead and open the public hearing. Members of the public wishing to address council, please submit a speaker card to the city clerk or use the raise hand button now or dial star nine on your telephone to indicate that you wish to speak. I will call on members of the public in participating in person first. And then the city clerk will ask remote participants to unmute their microphone when it's there to address council. The appellants will be provided 10 minutes at the beginning of the public hearing, um, divided among any appellants that are, that are formally appealed the planning commission decision. Following the appellants, the applicant uh, is also provided 10 minutes to address council. 
At the end of the public hearing, the, the applicant will receive an additional five minutes and the appellant who formally appealed the planning commission decision will have an additional five minutes. Um, is there an appellant uh, presentation? Me. Hi, Mr. Mayor, thank you and okay. council members. Um, and by the way, uh, as far as the amount of hours spent, I work full time. It's cost me a lot of my time and money to doing this. And my not my intent was not to my my intent was to speak up as a citizen of Sunnyvale, not to cost anyone money. I don't want to stop progress for the developer. I just wanted to make my what was hap what I saw in Sunnyvale's happening was upsetting me. And I've seen a lot of things happen over the years. Um, I have lived in Sunnyvale or around Sunnyvale since I was five years old. My parents still live in the home, except for five winters in Chicago. I, uh, my parents still live in the home they bought in 1968. And I grew up in a suburb with acres and acres of green space, walking safely to and from school for years and years, uh, to grammar and middle school anyway. And there have been some nice improvements around town I'm happy with. I'm not happy with downtown Sunnyvale. That's another, that could be another meeting and I don't wanna cost anybody more money. That's not my intent, sir. Um, the Matilda and Fair Oaks overpasses make it much safer for cars. I really appreciate that. I'm so impressed with the public safety here with the police. I've had, uh, they've been, I've had to call 911 a few times here, maybe twice in the 20 years here. I've been very impressed uh, with that. So there's a lot of great things. And, you know, the high rise buildings downtown Sunnyvale, I know we're in the heart of Silicon Valley, but not everything has to look like a silicon ship. So I appreciate your comments about the aesthetic appeal of new construction. Now I understand, you know, Mom was a very good partner in this. She just let, made me aware of the fact that it's already zoned for this, Leanne. It's been zoned for this for the 60s. I didn't know that until after I appealed. And of course, she made me aware of the state legislature that, you know, understand the housing crisis. We want to add more homes for people and make sure they're, you know, people can buy homes and, um, uh, and so that, you know, home prices are normalized a little bit. So I thank you for listening and just wanted to add some color to the elements of the letters that you see from myself and my neighbors, primarily around public safety, water supply, and street maintenance. That's kind of what we're concerned about. Um, so you can go to the next slide. I think the next slide, yeah. So this is directly across at in front of the um, senior center and the uh, place that's donuts. That happened in May. That also happens about once or twice a year in the uh, corner of uh, Menet and Crescent, which is closer to the Sunnyvale senior, uh, Community Center. So. It's just annoying that it happens. No, fortunately, I didn't hear this one, but my uh, neighbor, Lisa Prather, who also sent an email, did hear that happen. And it was kind of scary at that time. So that does something that happens. It does seem crime is increasing in our little short street, right? I live in a probably half of the street where there are more townhomes. It's not apartments. And then the other half where this is going, there are there's you know two apartment complexes. You have the, the um, senior, center, senior center across the street. Um, and then, you know, in the two years before, um, my HOA, I live in a small townhome complex. I've lived there for 20 years. Uh, there was, uh, you know, we had about 20 instances of people stealing our mail. Um, and then we replaced it about a year ago and since then it, has, it hasn't happened. So, um, but that has never happened before out of the 20 years. So I was surprised at that. We have regular smash and grabs on our street because of the parking situation. There's a lot of, I think it's a target rich environment, right? There's a lot of cars parked back to back from either 6 p.m at night till six in the morning, guaranteed there's no parking. People come to visit me. We have two guest spots for seven units. That's why I'm asking for more parking spots for 19 units. Like, can you at least put eight there instead of five? Because even my friends that come, they can't park in the guest parking. It's not enough and they have to walk, they have to park around the street to, to visit me. So that's that's the problem. And just regular speeding. Um, I'm going a little bit off track here because I know that uh, we're crushed for time. 
So people come off Sunnyvale Sartoga Road and they take a ride on Crescent, and they barrel down. So that's one of the things, if there's a way that we could put one of those signs, they have one up near uh, Manet and Fremont Avenue where it's like, slow down, here's your speed and it flashes. That may help. I don't know, There's you probably have stats on that, but something because people just, just come barreling down as a shortcut to get through to Fair Oaks or Del Camino. And um, let's see. If we can go to the next slide, I'll just go through the, the slides. Yeah, yeah so there's the parking. Here's, so I live in the, in the townhome complex where we have to put our garbage on the street. And you can see every Thursday, it's like a land grab to see, to find a space for your garbage. And in fact, one car is parked in front of a fire hydrant because we don't paint the curbs red. And so, and you can see that there's hardly any space to get in and out. And even without the garbage cans there, every time I go out to take a left turn onto Crescent, I have to really pause and take my time. It's not safe to come in and out. And this new, new development will have the same problem, right? It's 19 units going in and out of a small driveway to enter the, enter the traffic there. We can go on the next one. And this is just the parking. And again, it doesn't really do, the, this picture doesn't do it justice. I, I appreciate you guys taking the time to go visit it yourself. We can go to the next one. And this is just the street. <laughs> this is just the street. I just walked down there the other day. This is from a couple of weeks ago. And you can see this is the, uh, the state of the street now. And you can imagine in inclement weather, it's even worse. So it'd be great if we could do some street cleaning where we actually require those cars maybe once a month to not be parked there for a couple hours to get the streets clean. So um, it's not a pretty picture. Um, and then the next one, I think. It's just recommendations. I, I know that it's not gonna be a park, but I do wish we had more parks, so you can say that. I know we're not gonna build out eight townhomes. I don't, I don't want to anyone to lose money, um, but yeah, It'd be great to have some monthly street cleaning. It'd be great to add a speed sign, much like the one in Manet or Fremont. I would love to reduce the number of units. And I, it sounds like there's going to be, you know, liabilities that um, would cost the city money. And I definitely don't want that. But it'd be great if we could increase the parking spots. It, it would be great, um, you know, if we could paint curbs red around the fire hydrants and entering exit areas. And uh, finally, you know, I do appreciate the plan of keeping the original home in front, you know. I wish they did it for my place. They didn't do it for where I live. I guess there was a home in front of, you know, where Chicken Row there, that's what Crescent Avenue was. And I didn't realize that until after, even though I've been living here for most of my life. So, you know, I don't know if anyone else from my neighborhood here, I know my fellow neighbor was Lisa Prather, Mike Gum, or if anyone's on Zoom, I doubt it, but uh, it was really hard. I spent a lot of my time, I canvassed the neighborhood sending out, you know, notices. I did receive one notice for the initial May meeting. I was not out of town. I couldn't make it. And so that's when I contacted the city and Momo got back to me. And that's when I appealed. But this is first and it's new for me. I've never done this before. So I appreciate your time and listening. Thank you very much. Thanks. There are no other app, none of no other applicants in the room or appellants in the room. I guess not. Um, next up is the applicant. And you also have a presentation, correct? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. Uh, good evening, Mayor Klein and City Council members. Uh, my name is Samir Sharma. I'm managing member of Crescent Avenue LLC. Um, I did have a presentation, but I honestly think it's kind of repetitive. I think maybe it's more, you know, valuable for our time to address some of the questions I think that have come up. Um, you know, one of the things uh, I think just a few clarification items. Parking count, Momo mentioned 36. It's actually 36 in garages. It's five guest parking spaces and one uncovered behind the single family home. Um, we had a discussion on rental versus for sale. This is a for sale product. 
Um, there was a discussion on the architectural um, alternatives and how we got there. Um, Momo, to give a brief history so I could maybe give a few, a little bit more detail on that. Um, this process was started about two years ago um, with the first submittal for 20 units um, to the city of Sunnyvale. And once we discovered that there's a historical element, we started going down that process. Um, some feedback was given us given to us um, on the architectural elements from the historic consultant before we actually had our formal HPC meeting. Um, at that time, uh, you know, once we had the discussion with MoMA, we were deciding on two different alternatives. And so we decided to go ahead and let planning commission during the study session after the HPC meeting see both alternatives. So that was pretty much like the fourth, you know, fourth go around we had on on the different architectural elements. So, you know, we're doing our best to incorporate all the feedback we're getting um, and still hopefully trying to put a product out that we're proud to build and, and uh, hopefully intend to sell. Um, I just want to clarify that, that it just didn't go by the wayside. We had four different uh, versions of the architectural elements that were looked at. Cow water was discussed. Um, I can't say definitively, but I can go off experience. I've been doing this for 14 years. Um, typically, we'll have a subdivision improvement agreement at the end of the construction document process. Um, at that time, within the city and what we record with the city, there will be a contract with Cal Water as well. And typically, fees are paid before even construction starts. If we have paid fees, they have to provide meters. And that's at least how it's been in the past. I can't speak to the future. So that's a clarification out on the on the Cal Water question. <clears throat> a question was asked about our monthly expenses. Um, we have a four and a half million dollar mortgage on this property. Uh, our mortgage is forty four thousand dollars a month, and we pay six thousand dollars a month in property taxes. So we have about a fifty thousand dollar burn uh, on this property. We're a small corporation, three guys actually who are the LLC members. We're not a big company, um, so the cost of delaying submitting our CDs and submitting our final map has cost us about $150,000, just roughly speaking, okay? Um, we purchased the property for $6, six million. We had a $4.5 million loan. Today's interest rates are nine and a quarter, um, nine and a half percent, okay? So um, any other questions on the project itself? I'm happy to answer. Um, it's been a long road to get to this point, uh, you know, over two years, um, but I'm happy to answer any questions. It takes a lot of input, a lot of effort from, staff, from consultants, from third-party consultants, from Planning Commission, Heritage Preservation Committee. And I think we've done our best to put our best foot forward and produce a product that we, you know, that we can be proud of. So that's it. Yep. Thank you. Uh, you have at least one question. Uh, Councilmember Mellinger. Yep. Thank you very much. And thank you for asking my question regarding burn rate. Um, sure. Sure. Have you been paused since the appeal was filed, or have you been able to make progress on uh, other aspects of the work while waiting for the appeal? Um, we have not kicked off our CDs. Um, as you know, that's a time-consuming process and a money. Uh, it takes about, a, give or take, about four to $500,000 in consultant fees. Mm -hmm. uh, people who don't know our business would think that doesn't sound right, but uh, there's about 12, 13 consultants on a typical construction document set, mm -hmm. and each one of those consultants has a fee. So once we sign that contract, that billing starts. So Understood. we have not proceeded. Understood. Thank you very much. That's my only question. Okay. And you also have a question from Council Member Srinivasan. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Mayor. <clears throat> Only one question. In your photograph, 
Sure. There was a car parked uh, almost inside the uh, into the building. How do you prevent? My question is the same thing I asked about the emergency vehicles. Uh -huh. How do you prevent cars being parked on the space between the two buildings? Probably some type of bollards. So first you're going to have curb, right? You'll have right. a curb. And then you probably have bollards at certain strategic points. So okay. if even if an impact were to happen, it would be mitigated. Okay. Yep. Sounds good. Yep. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you. And next is Councilmember Sell. So in terms of parking, um, I think the state only requires you to do 13 parking spaces. Mm -hmm. So why did you go above that? At the end of the day, we are uh, trying to build quality product, um, put something out there that's appealing to people that they'd want to call home. Um, for us, you know, we, you know, society is trending towards shared uh, parking and Uber and um, different modes of transportation, public transportation. Um, but it seems to be realistic to have, you know, to have two sp parking spaces um, for a unit and for a family to have the option to use. Um, another, just another thought came in my mind to uh, council uh, member Cisneros question. So CCNRs, nobody mentioned that word CCNRs, but CCNRs are written and CCNRs have to be approved by the city, our attorney, the city attorney, and that is how the HOA rules are followed. So CCNRs have to be approved by the city. So that's how you mandate when when you can't have storage in a garage. And if you don't, if you, you know, if the HOA doesn't mandate that, you know, that's on the HOA's responsibility, right? So, and those are owners of those units. So. So in terms of that, just like in Lehman, like if I bought a townhouse and I joined the HOA, then I would be required to park my cars in the garage as opposed to use storage. It's for storage. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yep. And yep. then if the HOA found out I was using it for storage, then they'd have some recourse, yeah. whether it's fees or some type of provisions in order for you to not do that. Okay. Correct. And um, why did you redesign it like four times? Like, you didn't need to because of the state laws allow you to not have to redesign it four times. I think it just comes down to trying to work with staff to get a good product. You know, if we're a developer that's here trying to jam our, you know, SB 330 down the city's throat, that's not what we're trying to do. <laughs> we're trying to work with the city. I've done over six projects in the city of decent scale for our size. And so, you know, uh, we want to continue to work in the city. And so that's that's part of the reason. So okay. And then um yeah, I yeah, thank you so much for wanting to work with the city. My last one is um so construction. Sometimes when construction happens, like um people in neighborhoods are like um concerned or they're like wondering like um why is it so like how will you deal with like the neighbors who don't I mean how will you be within the um what the city has defined in terms of construction hours and sure sure kind of um things? it's not definitive that we as a developer are going to build this project ourselves we either hire a reputable general contractor um we have the ability to self-perform as well that being said, there's construction management plans. Uh, there's rules and guidelines to follow with the city. Um, 
and we've continually followed those rules, you know, working in Sunnyvale and working in other cities. So I don't see that being an issue. Okay. So. And if um, a contractor that you hired, like maybe um, exceeded, like did it too early or something, how would residents like? Um, oh, I'm sure there'd be residents calling the city of Sunnyvale, letting the inspectors know that they were working before hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's all my questions. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. I'll now go to the public. I have one speaker card. Martin Pine. Good evening. I'm Martin Pine. I'm the chair of the Sunnyvale Planning Commission. Uh, so, so just to briefly touch upon uh, the study session, we did have a study session on this project. We were presented with a couple different architectural alternatives. We gave feedback on all of it. And frankly, it was honestly, it was honestly kind of a good demonstration of why this why the state puts a strong emphasis on objective standards, because honestly, we I think every planning commissioner had a somewhat different opinion of what the architecture should be. I thought the when we got it back at the public hearing, I thought the applicant did a good job of synthesizing all of our feedback and coming up with something that looked good, that respected the craftsman style architecture of the original Easter Gable subdivision of the existing historic building that's being preserved by this project. Uh, the as for as for the project itself, it's consistent with the R three zoning designation. Uh, Councilmember Melton pointed out that the that the unit count is right in the sweet spot of what R three specifies. A reduc a reduction in the number of units is requested by appellant. Frankly, that would be inconsistent with the general plan policy. It would not meet the R three zoning standards, even aside from state density bonus law, uh, state density bonus law requirements. Uh, this I do now. I do believe the adopt acceptance of this project is compelled by state law. But even beyond that, it broadly meets the requirements. It meets the state. It meets the state density bonus law deviation deviant requirements for parking, as has been discussed. Uh, the remaining waivers that are and they are mandated by the state density bonus law, but they are in but they are in plan commissions opinion reasonable for given the property constraints given given the circumstances be around this project and i'll just say that if you actually want to council member mellinger's point earlier if you're actually interested in checking out what a project where it's just deviations where it's not required by the state density bonus law you should actually watch last night's meeting where we did have a project that was on kind of an irregular property shape that did have that did require some deviations, but they were not taking advantage of the state density bonus law, so it was ultimately discretionary. Uh, uh, so the planning commission recommends alternative one that the council deny the appeal, make the findings, prove the project. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have no speaker, no other speaker cards. Uh, uh, Mr. Clark? Mayor, I see a hand raised. Sorry, oh. I thought. Yeah, probably didn't. Okay. Thank you. Our city clerk, are there any remote participants who wish to speak on this item? Yes, Mayor. We have Stephen Mayer. Stephen, you've been unmuted and have three minutes to address the city council. Hello, council. Thanks for your attention tonight. So, so I own a property on Crescent Avenue, and I've been following this project all along. And uh, I say yes in my backyard. This is an excellent project. Uh, the process has been long. I really feel sorry for the developer for having to go through yet an appeal on this. 
so uh, shifting to process, um, I think you all might want to think about shortening all the community meetings because they really hasn't seemed to satisfy the appellant in this case. So if we could shorten the process by which we get housing started, then we can get to the end zone much quicker. So how can you think at all about process changes or an ordinance modifying the time at which projects become to you before review? Um, that's all. I hope you deny this and grant the project going forward. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Mayor, that was the final public speaker for this agenda item. Okay. Uh, the applicant um, now has an opportunity to address council for an additional five minutes if you want to present any additional information or if there's any questions from council of the applicant. Councilmember Mellinger. Thank you. Um, the appellant is no longer here. Okay. Um, I'll go ahead and close the public hearing and bring it back to council. Uh, Vice Mayor Dean. Uh, thank you. I'm ready with the motion, but I'm, are, maybe my colleagues have their hands up. Are there questions? Um, I have a question. Uh, so following up on Councilmember Sell's comments, and this was um, part of my Monday morning questions as far as signage, signage requirements for construction and staff was fairly complete about that. The one thing that I didn't, I forgot, I wanted to ask and forgot when we were doing questions was, was operational construction hours. And I know it's, you know, this seems to be the ongoing issue for, for a lot of these sites. And just wondering if that is specifically called out on the signage requirements for construction on the site. We have started to require that. Okay. So, so it doesn't need to be part of, no. you know, it's, it's an operational thing. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, that was my only question. Vice Mayor, to your motion. or with Thank you. Uh, I move alternative one to deny the appeal and affirm the planning commission's decision uh, and make the recommended findings. Thank you. Councilmember Mellinger. Second. To your motion. Thank you. Uh, and I'll make it brief. I was, uh, well, I will say in case she's watching it later, I do appreciate the appellant's uh, just dedication to what clearly she's hoping is in the best interest of the city. Uh, and I think some of the points that were brought up did have some legitimacy in terms of uh, the value of the concerns, especially when we're talking about, uh, you know, the importance of green space within the city by and like on a larger degree. Uh, and along with that, talking about the importance of cleanliness for the city. Uh, but when we get into the specifics of this project, it's very clear that the process was solid as it was meant to be, uh, that the developers were acting in good faith with the city, following the city's uh, feedback and trying to provide housing that's at the quality level that the city would expect. Uh, all of the things that are in it are in line with city policies and codes. And the only things that remotely deviate from that are the ones that are allowed by state law. Uh, and I think what made it extraordinarily clear for me was hearing from our city attorney about how uh, we would, from my understanding, most likely be brought to court, lose the case, have to pay an orbit numbers of fees, uh, and still see the project continue as is. So all that we would effectively be doing is just taking hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money and burning it with no change in outcome. So that all painted a really clear picture to me as to why alternative one is the best choice for the city moving forward. And I look forward to uh, my colleagues uh, hopefully joining me in that vote. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Mellinger. Thank you very much. I will not be quite so brief, but I will uh, endeavor. 
Um, one of the things that I have always appreciated about the city of Sunnyvale for, since I first started to get involved in politics in this city six years ago is that there is a very strong culture of the rule of law in our development projects. You follow the rules, you get your project. And what does the rule of law mean? This is a term that we hear a lot about. What it means is that someone, you know, an intelligent adult with, you know, a modest amount of knowledge can look at a thing and say, yes, this would be legal or no, this would not ahead of time. Right. And in this case, you know, we have a project that meets uh, zoning standards that have been established for 60 years in this area. Um, we also have a devastating housing crisis and a state government that has made very, very clear that their patience with local governments playing games with projects that meet established development standards is at an end. So, you know, I want to talk briefly, you know, I do want to say the appellant raised many issues that are worthy of discussion and many issues that I have a great deal of sympathy towards that I have dealt with in my own districts. Issues like litter, issues like mailbox theft, my own complex has been hit several times. Uh, issues with dangerous driving and donuts in particular. Intersection across from my place has donut marks, okay? I'm very sympathetic to many of these issues. However, none of these issues have any bearing upon the project in question. I want to be very clear about that. There is no nexus between the issues raised and the actual project. This is a good project. Even if we were not required by the state to approve this project, I would be voting to approve this project. This project is, it meets our zoning code. It is in keeping with the neighborhood. It is preserving a heritage home. We do not have a whole lot of heritage homes in the city of Sunnyvale and preserving any one of them is a very big win. Um, and beyond that, uh, the residents are actually very, very lucky here. The density bonus concessions that the developer asked for are very modest. Again, these are the sort of concessions that would likely have been approved anyway. The developer could have sought additional density. The developer could have sought additional height. They could have sought reduced parking. They could have done a builder's remedy project on this site at unlimited density and completely ignored our zoning code. They did not do those things. This is a developer that has followed the rules, that has worked closely and carefully with city staff, whose requested concessions are modest. They have done everything right. And frankly, they deserve to get their project. And I want to say one other thing, which is, and I trust the city attorney will cut me off if I go too far on this, but I have concerns about an appeals process that allows for a $290 appeal to be filed that then costs the developer $150,000. That's something that strikes me as potentially out of line, out of alignment. Um, and I'm gonna leave that there because that is not a noticed item for tonight's discussion. But that's, that's a, anytime you see a three order of magnitude difference like that, that's concerning. Uh, so with that, I will be supporting the motion, and I enthusiastically encourage my uh, colleagues to do likewise, not just because we have to, but because this is a good project. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Melton. 
Yeah, thank you. I'll be supporting the motion. Um, I just wanted to mention that I can make the required findings. I can also not make the um, disqualifying findings. Uh, so I'm good on on all fronts. Um, I started serving on the Sunnyvale Planning Commission 11 years ago, and there was a time uh, back in uh, 2012 where we probably on this project would have brought up the concept of we're trying to cram five and a half pounds of sugar into a five pound sugar bag. Uh, but times have changed and we're in a different world now. Uh, we're in a world of SB 330. We're in a world of density bonus laws. And as my colleague, Councilmember Mellinger has pointed out, um, state government um, isn't tolerant of reasons to say no. So I have a prediction that 11 years ago, this all would have been worked out to a great conclusion, but now under a different set of rules, this will still all be worked out to a great conclusion. Um, I'm, I'm just going to toss out one thing. Um, as a planning commissioner, 11 years ago, we were trained uh, very assiduously by the office of the city attorney and um, community development staff that um, applicants finances are not the business of the planning commission. So I don't mind that you were asked what your carrying costs are. I don't mind, you know, if somebody's interested in your financials, but the perspective that I come from having learned from um, city attorney and community development department is I keep my nose out of the financials of the developer so I can keep my um, thought processes clean and my hands clean in terms of making a decision here, not based on developers' financials, but based on the best interest of the city. So I thought I'd toss that out there. I really deeply appreciate that um, the appellant uh, made her appeal. Um, this is part of the process. It's part of um, inclusiveness in the city of Sunnyvale. Um, the concerns that are brought up are legitimate concerns that you hear many places in the city of Sunnyvale. Um, and the city works uh, very hard to uh, fulfill our pledge under policies for a safe and secure city, for example. Um, so I have no doubt under the auspices of existing policy for safe and secure city that issues like smash and grab, mail theft, um, concerns about unsafe speeds, pedestrian safety, um, those are all going to be addressed and continue to be addressed not only on this street, but anywhere in the city where issues may arise, because that's what we do under our commitment to the city um, for general plan policy, SN1, safe and secure city. Also a big fan of getting well water converted over to our friends over at CalWater. I have no question in my mind about CalWater's ability to deliver safe residential water. I, I agree with the mayor's concern about the two-year time limit on the letter, but this is going to get worked out because Cal <laughs> CalWater knows how to um, do this as part of their business. Um, there are many other things to like, but I think the entire process of community outreach, affordable housing, two units that will be provided plus a fee. The road widening is a thing to like, but it all gets back down to zoning and that the number of units and the height fits in with our R3PD zoning requirements. And um, considering the concerns raised on the appeal I find that the best course of action is alternative one. Um, I thank our applicant for your investment in the city of Sunnyvale 
And I really just want to say, I appreciate what our applicant said with regards to SB 330. I wrote it down. What I heard was, we're not trying to jam SB 330 down the city's throat. And I really appreciate that. Um, and again, I appreciate your investment in the city of Sunnyvale um, to Chair Pine and Commissioner Shukla. Great job by the Planning Commission. Thank you for your hard work on this. Please vote yes. Thank you. Uh, next up is Councilmember Srinivasan. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, most of my points were already spoken. Uh, it'll be very brief. What I like about this project, I will be supporting this motion. What I re really liked is the applicant who said, we are willing to work with the city. That really resonated very well with me. And then for me, uh, rest of the other, uh, and then the two affordable units, those, is, those are critically needed resources. And then wherever we can do, uh, build the affordable units, those are really, really appreciated. Uh, just to make sure that our RENA numbers are matched. And then as I said, I use this street uh, quite regularly. And then, yeah, parking and uh, donut and mail theft, they are all there. There is no doubt about that. But whether this project impacts those things or uh, enhances those problems, I don't have any data or I can't say that will be correct. So with those things in mind, I will be supporting this motion. Thanks a lot for the applicant for this project. Thanks for not asking too much waiver. These are all good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up is Councilmember Sell. Um, I will also be supporting this um, I will I will not be supporting this um, appeal. I will be rejecting the appeal um, because I think this is a as um, Councilmember Mullinger that this is a good project. And I really think that the process went right in, in this way in terms of I know um, the, the um, developer needed to redesign this four times, but I really like what it came out with, with like the historical house that stays there and it's at the front and that the units behind it match it. So really um, uh, the historical commission, heritage commission really did their job to research this and really look at which house is the historical and then to try to encourage the process so that that historical house would stay and to work through the process to make sure that, um, uh, and for it to go to the planning commission and for um, the, the developer to provide alternatives to our planning commission. And um, and then beyond that, a fourth alternative to uh, the whole process. So I've um, really, really, um, this, this working together for our community, our commission, our staff working so closely, the developer, and also the staff working with um, the people that were appealing this. Um, I heard from the person that spoke that said our staff explained the process, explained that this has been sown this way for since the 1960s. And um, that kind of being able to talk to both the developer and talking both to the community that maybe didn't support this at the first, but 
having them understand it and working closely with them. So I just think that this is, although we are at appeal right now, but I think this development went in a very positive direction. It utilized our commissions to the best of their abilities to make this uh, uh, a development that the developer can be proud of in our community, can be proud of that it's gonna be in our community. So I um, just wanna acknowledge that. And, and as um, was said here, um, a lot of the things that were brought up, the uh, speeding and, um, you know, needing, you know, different things being addressed. Those are things that we as a city need to keep focusing on. But those are things that a development does not need to take on to like solve. Um, so anyway, I will just be acknowledging that I really appreciate staff the work on this. I appreciate the developer and the work on cooperation and patience and you know, understanding with our community and our commissions who are doing their job, doing their work, um, providing such a good ad advisory role to the whole process and to the council. And so um, is there anyone else I can think? I haven't think, but this is a process that I think went right. Although we are here at appeal, but we are here at appeal where um, I think the outcome is gonna be um, a good outcome for the whole, whole community, hopefully. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Council Member. Uh, and yes, I'll be able, I'm supporting the motion to deny the appeal. You know, I was able to make the findings and and I appreciate going through the process and how we got to today. And, and as much as, you know, there was a lot of time spent by the Heritage Commission, by the Planning Commission to ultimately get to a point of approving this project. And it's not just those commissions, but um, it's also study sessions and feedback that that the applicant had uh, from neighbors as well as staff and and making the and working to make the project better. And I think that's the best portion of this is is having you know developers like this one who want to work with the city to make you know the right project in the in the community. You know this this street and and council relies on the stands on the shoulders of past councils you know it's like this area was rezoned for multifamily and you look at look at this block overall uh you know as as i've gone through many times uh it is mainly multifamily whether or not that's that's you know senior housing rental housing for sale housing it it, it fits with the block to a large degree and being able to save that heritage building that heritage heritage resource um, kudos to the to the developer and the applicant from that standpoint. Uh, as far as the the appellant, you know, I appreciate them bringing up their concerns. It is it is important, you know, and it is part of our process that that numerous decisions made at the planning commission can be appealed to council and for and or council members themselves can decide uh, to take a second look at that. Um, at no cost, ultimately, to to the applicant or or a group of neighbors that are appealing, you know, and that's the other thing is we get appeals not specifically just from neighbors. We get uh, um, um, appeals from applicants also, depending upon you know even positive decisions. A condition of approval can conceivably be appealed to council. You know, all that together, this is part of the process, and you know, as as um, 
the director of community development said the fees are are there as a minor barrier for council to conceivably take another look at at whatever the decisions were made uh, conceivably by the planning commission i do think that that is an important part of the process you don't want to make that barrier so high that a neighbor can't raise an issue or or you know a senior neighbor who's living on a fixed income can't raise an issue because we've made that barrier so high. So only developers have that capability. So it is an equity issue at the end of the day. And no, it probably never covers staff's time, but it but it is an important, you know, part of that process um, to have that capability for all of our residents, for all of our developers, for for you know any applicant or any any neighbor that is there. But but overall, you know, I, I went in deep dive and I, I appreciated you know, getting a, a look back from planning commission being nine years on the planning commission. I, I love to go back and, you know, take a look at at um, what the plans are. And I appreciate staff's very thorough evaluation of this project and, and working with the developer and, and the commissions, you know, to try to make this project better. And I think they have achieved that in the final result. Uh, the appellant did bring up multiple issues. Most of them are intrinsic to this to this neighborhood. But making the street safer, adding you know a good amount of parking on site, which some of the other projects may not have had when they were initially designed. Um, I think all those are good, and you know I think I'm very happy to see that this project ultimately will be moving forward. So with that, um, City Clerk, can you please conduct a roll call vote to to deny the appeal? Council Member Cisneros, how do you vote? Yes. Council Member Mellinger? Yes. Mayor Klein? Yes. Council Member Sell? Yes. Council Member Srinivasan? Yes. Council Member Melton? Yes. Vice Mayor Dean? Yes. The motion carries 7 0. Thank you very much. And City Clerk, I'm sorry I didn't give you the heads up. Um, we'll take about an eight minute recess and come back at 9 30 p.m. Thank you.
Let's go ahead and reconvene and move on to our next item. Our next item is item 23-0056, appoint applicants to the Board of Library Trustees, Housing and Human Services Commission, and Personnel Board. Is there a staff report? Uh, yes, good evening, Mayor and Council Members. Do you hear me? And if you can. Okay, I need your mic. Oh, there we go. Now you can hear me, sorry about that. Uh, good evening, Mayor and Council Members. This is David Carnahan, the City Clerk. Uh, there are currently five vacancies on the city's boards and commissions, and you uh, conducted interviews on August 15th. Pursuant to the council policy 7.2.19 boards and commissions, uh, the mayor may select either a paper ballot voting process or an individual candidate voting process for appointments. Uh, mayor's chosen paper ballots tonight. Uh, voting will take place in two rounds to accommodate applicants' board and commission preferences. I'll, I'll distribute individual voting sheets to you to be completed by each council member for each round. The candidate receiving the most votes and at least four affirmative votes will be appointed. Should a tie between candidates receiving the most affirmative votes occur, council may resolve the tie by motion or the affected applicants may be voted on again. If a tie still remains uh, and the affected applicants each have received at least four affirmative votes, the mayor will ask the city attorney to draw the name of the person to be appointed. I've also asked the mayor uh, to take a, a very brief recess while we tabulate uh, the ballots to make sure that you know what we're reporting out is accurate. And then should no candidate receive at least four affirmative votes for a vacancy, the vacancy will remain and staff makes no recommendation. This concludes the staff report and I'm ready to address any questions from council. Thank you very much. Are there any questions of staff? I see none, so I'll open the public hearing. Members of public wishing to address council, please submit a speaker card if you're in person or use the raised hand button or dial star nine on your telephone now to indicate that you wish to speak. I will call on members of the public participating in person first, and then the city clerk will ask remote participants to unmute their microphone when it's their turn to address council. Speakers will have three minutes to speak. I have several speaker cards. First up is Martin Pine, followed by Elizabeth Stewart. Am I going out? On this item, I'm speaking solely on my own behalf. Uh, as we all know, the purpose of a board and commission is to provide recommendations to council. And the reason I put on a speaker card on this item is that, as was pointed out in the interview process, there are some very significant decisions coming up for the city uh, regarding whether or not we're going to be replacing or just maybe refurbishing our main library. And I think it's important that council use tonight's Apple appointment to the Board of Library Trustees to make sure that they get the best advice possible when making that very significant decision. Uh, in particular, if council elects to, elects to put a bond measure in next year's ballot, I think we all want, want it, if that's what council wants to do, to have the highest probability of passing. And I think council owes it to its owes it to itself to appoint a trustee tonight that has clearly thought about the pros and cons of pursuing such a ballot measure and what, if there's a path to success there, it might look like. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next is Elizabeth Stewart, followed by Eric Poikin. Um, good evening, Mayor Klein, Vice Mayor Din, and Council members. Um, my name is Elizabeth Stewart. Uh, thank you for interviewing me a few weeks ago um, to be on the Housing and Human Services Commission. I believe that my work with lower income and unhoused people will make me a strong candidate for this commission. 
I also believe my prior work on commissions, um, the Heritage Preservation Commission and work as an accountant um, will prepare me well to serve the city. Uh, lastly, my commitment to attending both sides of the issue, the, um, the pros and cons, and then the different perspectives um, of the different players in different issues um, would make me a person who could serve all the people of Sunnyvale. Um, I hope very much to be the new commissioner on the Housing and um, Human Services Commission. Um, again, my name is Elizabeth Stewart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next is Eric Poikin, followed by Jaria Zhang. Zhang. What? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Good evening, council members, Mayor Klein. My name is Eric Boycon. I am a community outreach specialist with the uh, Santa Clara County Library District and speaking on my behalf. So it is very apparent to me that the uh, city of Sunnyvale is looking for someone who is not under understanding of what the community needs are, but what is gonna be needed when it comes to refurbishing or reconstructing a new library. And I feel out of all the three candidates, though it is nice to have someone who has the background experience of a librarian, and though it is nice to have a, the experience of someone who has been in a prior commission, I think uh, one of the candidates spoke loudly to me that would be better suited to serve the city as the library trustee, and that is Charles E. Chang. I believe her experience and knowledge about how bonds work and how that can impact resources. And not only that, being resourceful with those materials that are lacking in the city could be a benefit, especially when it comes to partnering with other agencies, whether they be nonprofits, county entities, or what have you. So I hope you all uh, have a yes vote for Charles Lee Cheng tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. And finally, Jaria Zhang. Hello. My name is Jariah Haug, and I'm here to speak in support of Charles Lee Chang for library commissioner. I'm a former coworker of hers. She doesn't know that I'm here, but I wanted to speak in support because I know how hardworking and she committed she is to whatever she does. When If she is elected onto the library commission, I know that she will be very specific in the policy. She's very intelligent, very smart, very analytical. She knows the interconnectedness of how the commissions work with the city, how the how libraries interplay with the county, and how the government works on a broader scale. So she brings experience from her love of the libraries to the overall policy mechanisms when it comes to different government systems. And as mentioned earlier, they, there may be a potential bond measure, and she has deep knowledge of that already, as demonstrated during her interview and in her application as well. She shows her passion for the libraries, how she grew up with them and how she cares deeply for Sunnyvale Library specifically. And so I just wanted to voice my support and say she would be an excellent addition to the Library Commission, not only because of her analytical skills, but also because of her passion and love for libraries and her genu genuine care into whatever she does. And so I really hope for a yes vote tonight for Chelsea Chang for Library Commissioner. Thank you. Thank you. That was my last speaker card. City Clerk, do we have any remote speakers wishing to speak on this item? No, Mayor. Okay, I'll close the public hearing, and I'll now ask my colleagues if they have any further discussion or advocacy on any of the commissioners before we start voting. Councilmember Mellinger. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. I just wanted to lay out how I'd be voting on a couple of these. Uh, first, for personnel board, I intend to be voting for Mr. Vickery. Um, his experience uh, in academia and his experience as a dean, his experience as a lawyer will be tremendously valuable uh, on the personnel board. It was very apparent from his interview that he's dealt with a number of uh, complicated situations, and I believe he will serve our city well. 
for the Housing and Human Services Commission, I will be double voting for Ms. Stewart and Ms. Weiss. Uh, Ms. Weiss, uh, we all know, served a long time on our planning commission. She is deeply knowledgeable about the city. She's deeply knowledgeable about issues pertaining to senior housing and aging in place, which are major priorities for our city. Ms. Stewart has also served on a city commission. Uh, her outreach with our unhoused neighbors is commendable. And having someone on the Housing and Human Services Commission with the depth of experience working with the unhoused would also be tremendously valuable. Finally, I do want to speak to the Board of Library Trustees. Um, I want to say, first of all, that I dearly wish that I could appoint both Ms. Chang and Ms. Hode to the Board of Library Trustees. Um, we have someone who is a Stanford librarian. We have someone with uh, who is a public policy expert. Uh, both of those are would be very good things to have on our library commission, on our Board of Library Trustees. Right now, the balance for me shift falls on the side of public policy. As has been stated, there are very, very large questions pertaining to whether to renovate or rebuild our main library that are coming that is are coming before us in the near future, at least in government timescales. These are complicated questions. How to how to work a bond measure, how to successfully pass a bond measure. Ms. Chang demonstrated tremendous depth with those questions in her interview. Um, I, in fact, I've been watching board and commission interviews for long before I joined this council, and that is one of the strongest interviews I've ever seen. To see someone being able to go and dig in to, you know, a 15-year-old bond measure and provide that depth of an analysis on it was really vital. So I will be voting to support Ms. Chang. She is also recommended. We have a letter of recommendation in our inbox from Supervisor Joe Simidian, who is a legendary figure in our county. Um, and I think that's a very strong statement of support. So I will be uh, voting for Ms. Chang. However, I would like to encourage Ms. Hode to apply again at the next vacancy, uh, because I do think that you would also be a very good member of the Board of Library Trustees. And with that, I will yield back. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Sell. Um, for the personnel board, I will be voting for Mr. Vickery. Um, he ha he's a lawyer, a dean of the former dean of college. Um, he has experience in the temperament um, to be on that board, so I'm really glad he applied for it. Um, and then I'm a former Housing and Human Services Commission. And although um, we had really great applicants and any one of them would be good candidates for the Housing and Human Services from the different perspective that they could bring to it. Um, Ms. Weiss is you know, a, a legend and a giant in our community and the schools and on the planning commission and civic organizations. Um, except the balance of my support will be with um, Ms. Stewart. Um, I believe that uh, we earlier this year prioritized supporting the unhoused. And um, I don't know anyone in the Housing and Human Services Commission or anyone that I normally uh, would know that would volunteer their time to work with the unhoused, to work directly with the unhoused. 
And so it is one of our um, six priorities for our council that we put, that we put there to um, support the unhoused. We also <clears throat> currently now have a full-time uh, unhoused staff, uh, a, a, a full-time staff person to help us to um, uh, lead programs and initiatives um, to address the unhoused. So I think that would be a good combination if we, with that strength of someone that is knowledgeable directly at the unhoused on the um, Housing Human Services Commission, coupled with our priority of supporting the unhoused as some of our priorities and uh, to uh, coupled with, um, I looked at the um, work plan for the Housing and Human Services Commission and um, safe RVs is on that. Um, that was when I was on the housing commission like three years ago, that was on the list of the comprehensive housing plan. And right now it's coming to um, be something where we have the staff to be able to work on it. We, uh, it, probably, it, it probably will be on the work plan and it would just be a really nice combination to have um, the commissioner on the housing and human services that actually has worked within house. And not only has she worked within house, she also had been serving on another commission. Um, and um, she has um, accounting background and serving on the housing and human services commission. Some part of it is um, looking at federal grants that um, Sunnyvale gets from the federal government and um, making sure, working with staff, to make sure that those funds get to where they need to go to support some of the people in most need in our community. So I just think somebody that also has an understanding of financial background is a good combination for that. So for the, all those reasons, I, I hope that um, the other applicants, if they're um, not successful and if um, Stuart is successful that the other applicants will continue to apply to the other commissions. And if Ms. Stewart is successful, that she will work with um, her passion. It appears she's passionate about helping that house. So it clearly shows and how she does her time, what she does with her time. And um, so that's who I'll be supporting. And um, yeah, it's a difficult choice between um, for the library trustee that has been sitting vacant for a couple of cycles. And now to have somebody who has, Miss um, Hold, who has a, um, you know, master's in librarian, uh, um, uh, master's in library information sciences, who, um, you know, has worked for nonprofit organizations, um, who is a librarian at Stanford, and who, um, who, when she looked at, uh, you know, what she could achieve, like what she zoomed into is like the underserved in our community um, are some of the people that are least likely to use our libraries. And so one of the things she thought was really important for her role is to reach out to those communities and to, you know, think of creative ways to get library access to them. And so, I just think she's a librarian. She spent her whole life to be a librarian. Like how many times in our commission of trustees do we have a librarian that wants to be on our 
Library of Trustees. So um, it's a very hard choice, as uh, Mr. Mullinger said, um, but I will be going with Ms. Ms. Hull for that. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you. I see no other comments. I'll, I'll just echo what the, the other council member said. I think we had a, a great group of applicants that um, for for all these positions this time. Not an easy choice, but um, with that, City Clerk, can you please distribute the first round of ballots? Uh, yes, Mayor. So let me pass these on down. Please make sure your name is the one at the top. Thank you. And then just for members of the public on their first round of ballots, uh, council will be voting on these applicants for the Board of Library Trustees. And then they'll be considering uh, these applicants for the personnel board. Uh, so we are gonna receive two ballots. The first ballot that you have lists two boards and commissions. So please vote for any applicants for either of those that you support. The second uh, ballot will have the third boarding commission. And as a reminder, the, the standard is normally to vote yes or abstain. Thank you. City Clerk, did you need a recess now or after this? Um, I think we can, if we can just pause. I don't know if we need an entire recess. This will sure. take us just maybe a minute or two. Sure, I'll leave it to you. No. Um, so Please. yeah, we're not able to pass out the we second ballot because there are people that are listed on both. So if they are appointed during the first round, they are not able to be considered for the second round. And this is a great opportunity for everyone to appreciate the hundreds of thousands of ballots that the registrar of voters can count <laughs> in, uh, in a few days.
Double check that one. Okay, Mayor, we're ready to report the results. Let me just get this queued up so you all can see how we recorded the votes. If there is any discrepancy in your intended vote and what you see on the screen, please uh, let us know. Uh, for the Board of Library Trustees, uh, Char Charlie Chang was appointed receiving five affirmative votes. Uh, she is appointed to a term that expires June 30th, 2026. And then for the personnel board, Barry Vickery was appointed receiving seven affirmative votes. He's appointed to a term that ends June 30th, 2027. Uh, we're now gonna pass out the second round of ballots. For this round, you'll be considering applicants for the Housing and Human Services Commission. And then just for members of the public at home, these are the applicants councils considering for the Housing and Human Services Commission. Okay, Mayor and Council, we have the results for the Housing and Human Services Commission with seven affirmative votes. Elizabeth Stewart is appointed to a term on the Housing and Human Services Commission that expires June 30th, 2027. 
Uh, and if you can please just take a brief moment to glance the screen and uh, make sure that your vote is recorded as you intended. And with that, there is, uh, there are still a couple vacancies remaining on how on boards and commissions. Uh, so during this recruitment, uh, we did not receive any applications for the Heritage Preservation Commission. So following council's uh, actions tonight and are following your appointments, there remain two vacancies on the Heritage Preservation Commission. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for a good process and thank you for the applicant and soon to be commissioner. Congratulations. Uh, next are council member reports on activities from intergovernmental committee assignments, which we haven't had for multiple meetings now. Um, first up is Vice Mayor Dean. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to talk about some brief things from the VTA. Uh, one is, as we heard from uh, members of the public today, uh, the 255 has started these last few weeks, uh, which is transporting students from North Sunnyvale down to Fremont High and Homestead um, and helping ensure that our students are able to get to high school easier. So uh, I'm very proud to report that due to all of the advocacy from parents, uh, but especially as well from you know the leaders up here on the dais, I want to give a big thank you and shout out to uh, the person I work with who's on the VTA pack, Councilmember Sell and then Mayor Klein, uh, and quite frankly, everyone up here for the advocacy and all the parents and community members that advocated for that. Uh, and then on top of that, I, as many of you may recall, one of our previous council meetings, we had some members of the public uh, concerned about how VTA bus passes are being uh, given out to students within the district, uh, and especially having to do with if they're monthly or annual. I've talked to VTA staff and just want to report out to the public uh, that from what I've heard from VTA staff, uh, the decision as to what types of passes are being bought uh, lies primarily with the school district. Uh, VTA is very willing to sell different kinds of passes upon request. Uh, and so I really encourage the school district to work with parents uh, to find what are the best kinds of bus passes to offer to students. Uh, and whatever decision the parents and school district come to, uh, I think I would be more than happy to abide by in terms of advocacy on behalf of the city uh, and on behalf of our residents. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Uh, next up is Councilmember Mellinger. I just wanted to report that uh, last week I attended the Caltrain Modernization uh, LPM Local Policymakers Group meeting. Uh, continued discussions on grade separations and the standards, uh, the process that Caltrain is working on on the issue of grade separations. Uh, my understanding based on the slides presented is that the uh, there's a funding decision slated for the Mary Avenue underpass by around November. I'm sure staff has is keeping very close tabs on that. Um, the other thing that we discussed was the on work of the ongoing electrification. So the important thing to hear uh, on that is that the major hardware installation in terms of the substations, the overhead wires, et cetera, is expected to be finished by the end of this year. Um, they're also going to be beginning to test the new electro electric motorized units, EMUs. Um, I had a great opportunity. I know the mayor was there as well to tour one of those EMUs at the end of July. Uh, it was a fantastic event. I think council member Melton made it. We weren't at the same time, but it was a really great event. Beautiful cars. Can't wait to be able to ride one myself. And one of the interesting things is every single EMU on the tracks that is going to be on the tracks when revenue service starts next year will have been tested for a thousand miles 
before revenue service starts. That's the uh, safety standards, I believe, federal safety standards. So work is continuing apace. I am optimistic that with the uh, completion of the hardware installation, if that finishes this year as expected, that that could lead to some improvements in weekend service uh, even before we get the full, uh, before the switches get thrown online. So uh, with that, I believe that does it for my non-governmental reports. Thank you. Thank you. Next is Councilmember Melton. Yeah, thanks, Mayor Klein. Um, here's a report from SVRIA, the Silicon Valley Regional Interoperability Authority. I'm pleased to report that I've been reappointed for a second year to serve as chairperson of the board of SVRIA. This is an agency, a JPA that I'm very fond of and uh, does great work for public safety throughout the county. Um, SVRIA over the past 12 years or so at a cost of about $50 million has built an interoperable um, radio communication system for our first responders, police, fire, EMT. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing um, jury service in Morgan Hill of all places. And during one of the many moments of downtime where you just have an ability to sit and think about different things, I found myself um, looking at the sheriff's deputy who was there. And I thought to myself, this specific sheriff's deputy who was in the courthouse could use his Motorola handset if circumstances required and talk to any specific other police officer or first responder in the county, whether it's Palo Alto or San Jose or Sunnyvale DPS. Um, it's that integrated of a system. And it uh, was built using primarily grant funding to the tune of about $50 million over the course of the last 12 years. Next month, we're going to be holding a strategic so-called retreat. It's going to be a strategic meeting for the board members and for our working committee to figure out the next 10 years, because now the system has been built. And my motto is protect, defend, maintain, and enhance this system that has now been built. And the grant money will probably not be there in the future. So how do we uh, maintain the system that's been built? We have a great service contract with Motorola that's probably going to have to be renegotiated down the road. Um, so these are the big questions that the board will be taking a look at at our um, strategic offsite next month. And I'll keep everybody posted. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up is Council Member Sell. Yeah, and I think it's um, great news that we have the bus um, 255 to um, help Express Bus to get the BTA provided that to and started the school year to help get the North Sunnyvale students to Fremont High School um, quicker. And I wanted to acknowledge um, Vice Mayor Dean, who I'm kind of his understudy. So I like would ask him about stuff. Oh, are you looking into this? And then he would like go beyond that and say, I'm talking to CEO of BTA. I'm talking to like, uh, you know, this or that staff member. And they gave me this, this information. I go, wow. So I was like his understudy. But when I would ask him stuff, he would always be, you know, ahead of me and ahead of uh, at the forefront of advocating for um, 
our residents, for the students, to help our students in Sunnyvale get to high schools. Um, my little part is that whenever I saw a BTA staff member, I was able to tell them that um, Sunnyvale had like a study issue in which the study issue was about helping the students, a study issue helping the North Sunnyvale students get to their high schools. And it ranked number one out of about 16 study issues that I competed against. And then so VTA staff was impressed that our council would prioritize that VTA, like the VTA service high in our public, um, what our public work study issue. So uh, whenever I talked to the VTA and I told them that they go, wow, like that their work would um, gen engender so much interest from our city. And so that was a good combination with Vice Mayor Dean to be there to say, yeah, and this is how you can help us. And then we get like good things like um, the VTA bus 255, which it was really great to hear at public comment that is working good. So that's how it's supposed to work. Um, and then we, the bus 255 even made it into the, um, I'm on the PAC, VTA PAC, uh, um, PAC for and um, the liaison for our PAC, the staff, has a presentation in which they summarize some achievements. And BUS 255 shows up in their summary slides as some accomplished that since they did. Um, the other thing that was addressed at the VTA PAC meetings was transit-oriented development. So that is just really great that um, on VTA property, like they are developing homes. Uh, housing units and it's right near BTA. So it's the best like transit oriented development. So, you know, it's really like heartwarming to see that VTA is looking into that to address our housing crisis. It's heartwarming that VTA is listening to our community of Sunnyvale, um, what's important to us and trying to help us with that. So um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. And I have several things to report. First, from a Silicon Valley clean energy standpoint, I have good news and bad news. Um, the good news is I toured uh, Vargas Elementary a few weeks ago, and Silicon Valley clean energy and Sunnyvale School District announced the completion of the clean building upgrades to Vargas Elementary. So that was combining half a million dollars from Silicon Valley clean energy and other funding sources, the district was able to replace the school's old gas furnaces with 12 new electric heat pumps uh, that will improve air quality and serve as demonstration project for other schools and other buildings in the district. Uh, the new electric heat pumps will re replace furnaces that released six tons of CO2 per year and over 18 pounds of nitrous oxide per year. Uh, which directly contribute, of course, to smog and, and causes of asthma in, in students. So, so um, Silicon Valley Clean Energy utilizing their funds to make, you know, local level electrification changes for everyone's benefit. And so I think this is, this was a pilot program for 10 different projects. Um, SSD got uh, one of the largest grants. And so good to see that you know, going forward in electrification of all of our schools. Um, from a bad news standpoint, uh, Silicon Valley Clean Energy CEO Girish Balachandran announced that he will be retiring uh, within the next seven months. 
So they have started an executive search, but he's there for that transition. And, you know, he's he's really helped that organization grow overall. And I think, you know, uh, uh, it's, he's, you know, several of you have met him uh, previously, but just to see the good that that organization does, you know, from either both saving our residents money from from an electric electric standpoint, as well as just generally how those funds are being reinvested in our community uh, and statewide to make sure that that there is enough green energy uh, for for the grid going forward has has been really fantastic. So he will be missed, but he is here for another seven months, and he should be at the state of the city on the twenty third. So so you if you you can talk to him in, and then from the county wide recycling and waste uh, reduction commission at our last meeting i was made chair and the other half of that is um I'll, there's lots of good work going on countywide uh for food diversion so we're working with joint ventures working with other organizations uh, making sure that food waste that food doesn't make end up in food waste but is actually uh, gets to people who actually need it so you know very positive uh, things that organization is doing and happy to be chair for the next year. Um, I see no other comments from council. I will move on to non-agenda items and comments. Uh, first up is Vice Mayor Dean. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mayor. And I just wanted to follow up on the heels of the announcement you made at the beginning of the meeting. Uh, I think it's important to state to the public that I was also one of the uh, council members involved in uh, being in a brown act group with the mayor uh, and one other council member related to uh, a lot of the things on the Mothley Park specific plan that did not involve the names of districts, but then me and the other council member with a separate council member to talk separately about district names within the Moffat Park area. Uh, at the time, we were we believed that that was not a violation of the Brown Act, but uh, after uh, hearing from our city attorney, uh, in the interest of ensuring that we are not even giving the appearance of violating that and to make sure that the public trust endures, uh, I do want to make sure that I'm, I mention it here publicly so that uh, there is transparency to that effect and that we can rectify any unintentional breach of public trust. And so, uh, again, as we did it, we believe that because we were talking completely separately, uh, there wasn't an overlap, but you know, depending on your interpretation of the Brown Act, uh, that can still be seen as a violation of the Brown Act. So I wanted to address that here. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Next up is Council Member Mellinger. Thank you. I would also like to address the issue of the Brown Act. I have a study issue for later in this evening, but I suspect that we should probably let a full round go before we do that. Um, so in the interest of transparency, I want to take responsibility and apologize unreservedly for the potential Brown Act violation disclosed by the mayor at the beginning of tonight's meeting. It was my idea that I could discuss the names of the neighborhoods in Moffat Park with one group and the substantive land use decisions with another. To my mind at the time, that was as clean a cut as it was possible to make, you know, a rose by any other name. But that is irrelevant because regardless of how clean the cut may or may not have been, the Brown Act did not permit me to make that judgment call. I want to be clear that this was an error born of misunderstanding, not malice. And I believe that despite my failure in this regard, this body's actions remain consistent with the spirit of the Brown Act. The Brown Act is the foundation of open and transparent government in the state of California. It is a pillar of our democracy. It is the guard that ensures that the bad old days of backroom deals and smoke-filled halls stay the bad old days and that they do not return. 
As such, the Brown Act must be observed scrupulously. I deeply regret that in this case I fell short of doing so. I apologize, and I will endeavor never to repeat this error. Thank you, colleagues, for your time and indulgence. Thank you, Councilmember. Uh, next up is Councilmember Melton. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to speak. And I really appreciate the statements that um, are being made about the Brown Act. Um, just to chime in with some perspective, um, this is twice in two years that we've been talking about sort of technical violations of the Brown Act. And I just wanted to talk briefly about um, each of those. Last year, it was the gun control memo, and that was Councilmember Spitaleri, Councilmember Dean, and then Vice Mayor Cisneros, who signed on to a memo proposing various gun control remedies here in Sunnyvale. The Brown Act violation happened when former Councilmember Spitaleri handed that memo um, to Mayor Klein. No malice intended, a misunderstanding of the process. Um, and Mayor Klein found himself as the fourth person in the, in the Brown Act. To add some intrigue to all of that, there was an email group from one of our local advocacy organizations that had my name on it and Councilmember Larson's name on it. And in a spate of enthusiasm, a mass email was sent out by the advocacy group that ended up in my hands and Councilmember Larson's hand saying, everybody pay attention to this gun control memo. So now we're up to six. And I heard Glenn say sort of retroactively, former Councilmember Hendricks, he said, oh, I was contacted along the way by an interested community member who also handed me a copy of the memo. So that's all seven of us. No malice intended, but that was technically a violation of the Brown Act. And I recall that there were conversations. Tony made a very um, elegant statement apologizing for the inadvertent um, violation of the Brown Act. And I think that was an instance, right? Um, and here we are again talking about the Brown Act um, in the context of what happened with the Moffat Park specific plan. And, and I start where I heard the mayor um, leave off earlier this meeting, which is in the city of Sunnyvale, uh, we are all committed to adhering to the Brown Act. I heard the mayor say that. I believe that absolutely unequivocally. Um, and so in in this instance, I think it's a, it's a good lesson um, about why the Brown Act exists, not just that it exists and there are rules, but that that exists and there are rules and there's a purpose for the rules that revolve around public trust. And as Councilmember Mellinger said, the avoidance of backroom deals. And here, here's the concern that I feel when I look at this instance of what happened in the context of the Moffat Park specific plan. So um, once again, I wanna say in this instance with Moffat Park, um, no malice intended. I do not sense that there was any malice. It was inadvertent that, you know, folks were acting honorably. But when you have a situation where two council members are in the middle, and they talk to one council member over here, and then a fourth council member over there, the, the two council members that are on the side, not in the core group of two, right, they might be thinking to themselves, well, I'm going to be okay with whatever else is decided because I'm part of the thing that I wanted, 
whether it's the name of the neighborhoods or on the other side, the land use issues that were discussed. If you got what you wanted on the neighborhood names, you might be willing to kind of hold your nose and not make a fuss about the land use issues that were raised. Or if you're the council member who was pulled into the group on land use issues, you might be inclined to say, eh, I'm not going to raise a stink or a fuss about the neighborhood names uh, because I got what I wanted. And that's the Brown Act issue, right? Is you've got multiple groups of serial communications going on. Was there ever any overlap? No, absolutely not. Was there any malice? No, absolutely not. But the public needs to know that council members are 100% of the time acting in the interest of the public and not the group. Council is not here for council. Council is here for the public. Um, I know my explanation may be a little convoluted in how I just talked about all of that. Um, but I want to say this is twice in two years that we're sitting here talking about the Brown Act. Um, and so I just want to make a note of that. Colleagues, please um, instill an alarm bell regimen in your thought processes. Anything at four, you should have alarm bells going off. Anything at four, you should be talking to the city attorney uh, to get things perfectly clear. Um, and as I've heard it said, be scrupulous, be meticulous, two or three is the is the max and um thank you for letting me just make these comments i appreciate it thank you uh council member srinivasan thank you mayor uh for transparency i was uh in the group which was deciding the neighbors the neighborhood names but I can confidently and then honestly say that I was not involved in the land use uh, group. And then my decision on Moffat specific Moffat Park specific plan was not because of my name was chosen or the neighborhood names were chosen. So I can honestly say that. And then for any error of judgment, I apologize, but I can honestly say that it was acted on that no malice was intended. Thank you very much. Thank you. Councilmember Sell. I wanted to say that I really appreciate the Brown Act because I enjoy coming to these meetings, not knowing most of the time what the other council members are going to um, weigh in on this and listening to the people in the audience, um, listening to what they have to say and not coming to a conclusion until I've heard everyone, including my colleagues. So um, I'm really appreciative that in California, we have the Brown Act and that um, on this council, I think many of us come from different walks of life and for us to come together to uh, hear out an issue and to present um, our perspective after listening to the testimony of the community, the staff's report and uh, our colleagues. And I think, um, that's what democracy and the strength of our democracy is. Um, so I think the Brown Act helps support that. And I also, from hearing um, uh, the situation, um, I also do not believe there was any malice of intent. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Council Member Cisneros. Yeah, thank you. And I'll just chime in. Uh, yeah, thank you, Council Member Melton, for reminding us of last year and just, um, you know, cause I got, I kind of got swept in 
with that inadvertent brand act violation. And I can just say having that one experience at one time, you think really hard about the brand act from then on out. You really want to stay out of the position where you're having to, um, you know, talk to the public about a pretty big mistake that you made. But I think the difference between this council and maybe a lot of elected bodies is we're willing to own up to it. Because I think that it's more common than people would like to admit that these violations take place inadvertently um, in elected bodies and they kind of go unnoticed. And, and something I've noticed about the city of Sunnyvale is we don't let those things go unnoticed. And, and I think that's really that really speaks to our character as an elected body. And I just want to commend my colleagues for um, having the courage and, and, you know, kind of sticking yourself out there and, and admitting something hard. Um, because that shows your character and, and you're caring for the city. So I just wanted to commend you. Um, great job. Uh, and, you know, I know we can move forward and I can tell you from experience, you will always think about Brown Act after having to do this. And I'm confident you all will too. Um, I have no concerns about the ethical scruples of my colleagues. So thank you very much. Thank you, council member. And I, I just want to also add um, thank you to the city attorney for you know, basically meeting with each of the council members and reiterating, let's say, the 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 requirements of the Brown Act, but also more importantly, the spirit of the Brown Act, which I think is the critical thing at the end of the day. And and you know, encouraging, you know, um all of us to be open about, you know, what's happened, as well as as working with me to to, you know, uh figure out what's the best way to proceed. From this matter and and how to run today's meeting so so i appreciate that you know i appreciate your hard work all the things that you do for the city but you know the brown act is is a very critical thing and and you know definitely making sure that reiterating to us the importance of that i think you know is to is kudos to you from from what you're doing um next up is council member mellinger um I am ready with a study issue. If any of my colleagues have anything else they would like to say about the Brown Act, I would defer. Um, so, uh, Mr. Uh, City Clerk, uh, could we get the uh, PDF on screen, please? Uh, study issue, closure of interior levees by the Water Pollution Control Plant. Uh, as part of their feedback on the Moffat Park specific plan, local environmentalists raised concerns about the impact of public access to interior levees around the water treatment plant on local wildlife. Uh, please see the attached slide from the environmentalists. I wanna be clear that the opinions on the slide do not necessarily re uh, reflect my own. Um, yeah, that. Um, so the text is from the local environmentalist. I did not I want to edit it and cut it out, but that's not necessarily my opinion. The important part here is the green lines. Those are the interior levees that we would be studying the closure of. Um, so if we go back to the main text of my motion, if everyone's got a good enough look at that, um, or my study issue, I should say, not a motion. Uh, these levees are duplicative. There are already trails on the outer edges of the pond that would remain available to the public where they closed. Uh, this study would examine the permanent year-round closure of the levees marked in green to members of the public. It would include public outreach and be brought before both the Parks and Sustainability Commissions, either jointly or separately. Thank you. Are there co-sponsors? Uh, Council Member Melton. Yeah, I'll co-sponsor. And can I ask a question of staff? Sure. Um, and City Manager Steffens, um, 
it's okay if we have to circle back on this. Do we have something in the budget about the levies and rehabilitation? Um, and do you have any recollection of a correlation between a rehabilitation effort that's funded and the green lines on the map? That's just sort of a reminder. Um, there is a project in the budget to stabilize levies where there's some erosion. Um, it's really... Um, related to the st stability of the levees to just contain the the water that we have out there it, there's not a correlation between uh this proposal and the levees that need to be repaired there's kind of a scattered uh group of levees that do need some repair work that uh was included in our long-term capital project budget okay thank you so much for that and i'm happy in any case to co-sponsor and thank you to council member Malinker. thank you council member srinivasan uh, I will co-sponsor. Uh, looks like uh, our environmental groups uh, have recommended this. We need to have a detailed study. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Sell. I will also co-sponsor. Thank you, Councilmember Cisneros. Co-sponsor. And Vice Mayor Dean. Co-sponsor. And I will also co-sponsor. Thank you. Councilmember Melton. Councilmember Srinivasan. Councilmember Sell. <laughs> no more hands raised. Um, City Manager, do you have any non-agenda items or comments? Nothing tonight, Mayor. Thank you. Okay. With that, we will move to adjournment at 1024 p.m. Thanks to everyone who participated this evening. Have a good night. 30 minutes.